as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. This is the very, very controversial passage we're going to be covering today in detail. There's a whole debate, actually there's a series of debates on the topic, and I'd like to understand it well. Now, a lot of modern readers are going to immediately find all of this very offensive. I understand that. I'm not trying to insult you or something, but I want you to understand that that's not my main concern, is, is that offense that, that some of you feel upon reading these verses. My main concern is what does this passage actually mean? Um, understanding it in context. And what you've done is you've just read some verses randomly out of a letter that was written to a group of people, and it has a fuller context, obviously, and there's a whole bunch of debates on the topic. But I'm bound as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus who believes in the Lord, and that this is his word. I'm bound to believe this, to receive it fully, to understand it carefully. That's a lot of what we're going to be doing today is understanding it carefully, and then to support it completely. That's what it means to, I think, be Christian in, in the world, and, and I, I get that there's a lot of Christians who think that um, um, obeying and trusting the Bible is optional, but I think that you are rebelling against Jesus when you think those sorts of things. So we're going to focus on a Christian approach to this topic, and this is part 11 in my Women in Ministry series. As I go through the topic of women in ministry covering everything in the Bible that it teaches about it, massively debated issue as far as what kind of authority roles are appropriate or inappropriate, the two sides the two sort of sort of polar opposite sides are kind of like the egalitarian side, which says, hey, um, there are no role differences for men and women in the body of Christ. And some of them would go on to say, even in marriage, there's no role differences there as far as as far as relating to authority. Not that they'd say there's no difference of any kind of any conceivable, but not related to authority. And then the complementarian or patriarchal side on the other end, which is going to say, hey, no, uh, we're equal. We all have dignity and quality and value and purpose and meaning. And we're, we're equal in Christ, but there is different roles relating to authority that affect how we do church government and how we do marriage. Those are the two sides that we've been talking about. So both those sides are obviously going to approach this passage very differently, right? Like you can, you can feel like obviously the egalitarians are not going to be able to take it to mean what it looks like it means. But even many complementarians are going to say, hey, I don't take it on face value either. I think when you read this passage by itself. It looks like it's saying something different than what I think it's actually saying to some degree. Um, we're going to talk then about five different interpretations people have of this passage. Five different views, I should say views, because the first view we'll talk about is the interpolation view, that that this is the people who say this passage doesn't belong in the Bible at all. It, it shouldn't be there. It doesn't belong in the text of scripture. This, this section right here on your screen, give or take a couple sentences or a couple phrases, you know, the beginning and end of it here. Uh, just doesn't belong in the Bible at all. Well, problem is solved, right? Because there's no controversial passage to discuss, to have controversy over. It just doesn't belong in the Bible. The second interpretation or view we're going to look at is the quotation refutation view. This is the idea that Paul isn't saying anything that you're looking at on your screen, especially this section here, for sure. He's not saying that. That's something Corinthians are saying. Paul's quoting them. And then in verse 36 and going on, he refutes them. He rejects that view. So the people who hold this view would probably argue that it is a very patriarchal or complementarian kind of thing, but it's something Paul is against, Paul is rejecting, and so it proves that the egalitarians are right. Then there's the education or clatter view, and the education slash clatter view is the idea that the real issue here is not about women. 
it says women keep silent and all this. And it talks about, you know, husbands at home and shameful for a woman to speak in church, all those things. But it's not actually about women per se. Really, it's just about education. Paul doesn't want uneducated people interrupting church services with uneducated questions. Or perhaps this is a related view to this. I'll put it in the same category for reasons you'll see later. That it was women who were prone to um, uh, speak out in like ecstatic tongues because they're getting this from some cult practices. And so really what they're saying, what this view is saying is the real issue is not that they're women, but that they're either less educated or they're lacking in certain social skills. Um, To put it mildly, this interpretation limits the application of this passage to people who are less educated or lacking in those social skills. So you wouldn't, it doesn't apply to women at all. It only applies really to people who lack education or certain social skills, or they're doing ecstatic kind of crazy spiritual things that aren't biblical. Um, the fourth view that we'll look at is called the utter silence view. Now, the first, the last three views I've given you are all egalitarian views. They're all views an egalitarian might put forward. The next two views are complementarian or patriarchal views. And this is probably the most strict patriarchal type view, the utter silence view. So view number four, we will study, we'll look at in detail, is the idea that um, some churches have where they limit women from not only being elders, but even from speaking openly in church gatherings, like say, even making an announcement, like you couldn't go on stage and make an announcement or maybe stand up and pray openly where everybody else is listening to and following along your prayer, um, that sort of thing. Or maybe, if, you know, if you have a, a church where you believe in spiritual gifts that they're present and active today on a regular basis, then you couldn't have a woman stand up and give a prophecy in the church. They would even reject that or maybe even not let women sing in the choir. Do you see they take the silence of women? Um, to be very broad, very broad scoped, and very broad application. So that that is the utter silence view. Um, the fifth view, the final view, which is my personal view, and I'm going to build a case for, I'm going to show the pros and cons of all these views, um, but I'll show you why I hold this view. This is the judging prophecy view. View number five says that this section of scripture is about telling, uh, it, well, here's the thing. If you're not in a church that practices things like prophecy, even in like a a non-crazy way, right? Like, like a responsible biblical fashion. If, if you're not in a church like that, then this might seem foreign to you. But in the first century, for sure, it wasn't foreign to them. Okay, at least at this time, it was. It seems normal for people to give a prophecy during a church service. And after somebody gave a prophecy, there was a routine that took place in the church where they would judge or test that prophecy. In other words, they wouldn't just take it at face value, but they'd ask, hey, should we receive what was just said as though it was from God, as though it was a revelation from the Lord or not? And they would test it. What Paul's doing, according to the judging prophecy view, is he's saying, hey, I don't want women to be doing the testing of the prophecy because that infringes upon a leadership role that is reserved for men in the body of Christ. Again, this is a complementarian view. Many egalitarians would find this very offensive. Um, it, or or some would, wouldn't be offended, but they would just think it's wrong. Okay, but, but, but a lot of egalitarians would also find it deeply offensive. And so... We'll talk about that. This view says then that women are being kept from judging prophecy during the time of judging prophecy. We'll see if there's context in 1 Corinthians 14 to, to prove this is true. And this just keeps them out of that elder role. And so um, a complementarian like perhaps myself, I, I again, I came to this, this project, honestly, I'm being open with you guys here, uh, hoping to become egalitarian, not just to become, but hoping that I would discover that the Bible actually does support that view um, probably because I've been raised in a feminist culture my entire life. I imagine that's part of the motive that's there. 
or or evangelism the idea that i feel like it'd be a little easier to evangelize if i was able to um agree with people the world in general at least the western world more on these views uh the non-western westernized countries would actually be offended by the egalitarians believe it or not so it's it's lose lose you're gonna offend somebody but i think that this judging prophecy view is actually uh, strongly supported by the context, and it fits what my own research has at least convinced me of. You get to be the the one who decides what you're convinced of, but I hope you'll hear me out. So these different views can get really complicated, and what I've done is I'm going to break down today's teaching into the following outline. And so I'll use my little counter there, and I'll also put timestamps down below. And when we deal with issue number one, I'll put one up on the screen. So the, the first view is the interpolation view. We'll look at Here's how it's going to be the format for today. We won't look at everything in the world related to each view. We'll look at what I call hinge points. These hinge points, you see the interpolation view has two hinge points. Some people say that the manuscript evidence, um, you know, is, is really, it is really important. The manuscript evidence is a hinge point. Does that support or reject the idea that this was never in the, in the Bible to begin with? And then the second hinge point is Pauline style. Does, does this passage fit Pauline style or can you argue that the style is so different from Paul that it doesn't belong. So each of these numbers, um, each of the numbers, like one through three or one and two, underneath the views, those are the hinge points we'll be covering in today's video. I hope that made some sort of sense. But let's just get right into it. View number one, the interpolation view, we're going to look at the hinge point of the view. So this is, again, this is the, it doesn't belong in the Bible view, <laughs> okay? For those who think, this passage simply doesn't belong in the Bible. I think this is probably a very small number of people. But I've also heard people who, what they do is they play a little bit of a, I, I don't want to just call it a game because some there are times when you have to legitimately do this because you just don't know. So you have to hedge your bets. But there are those who will push this view, even though they're not convinced of it, they push it out there just to create doubt about the complementarian position. I've seen this in interviews. I've seen it in books. So I'm going to just say, call this spade a spade. Um, so they won't back it up and like say, I stand on this view, but they'll throw it out there like, maybe it has merit. You guys might consider it. And um, when we look at the hinge points, we're going to find that it really doesn't have merit um, at all. And, and you, sh you shouldn't worry about it. So let's look at hinge number one of the interpolation view. Hinge number one is the manuscript evidence. When I say manuscript evidence, as most of you know, we have a bunch of ancient copies of, say, 1 Corinthians. And we have them spread out. They're in different locations, right? In, in, in the ancient world, they're in different places. They were made at different times. One might have been made in, in the 200s AD, one in 1200 AD. And they don't all show the exact same info. The question is, on, on those manuscripts, are there any of those manuscripts where 1 Corinthians 14 verses 34 and 35, or 35, 36, 34, where those, where those verses are just missing? And the, the biggest point here with hinge number one is, no, there's literally not a single manuscript that's missing these verses anywhere in history of mankind that we're aware of. And we have no reason to think that there was, it seems. So the manuscript evidence, this alone would seem to prove that this verse belongs. Like if there's a verse that's in every known copy of a text, that verse is authentic. Like, what hubris must I have to think that I should just remove that from the Bible? Um, you know, on the other hand, there's, a, if there's a verse that's in like one copy from like 500 years after the time it was written and it's in every other copy, uh, it's missing and every other, then you would be like, wow, you can't just cram that into the Bible. Like you need to acknowledge what the manuscript evidence is saying. 
But it gets complicated, okay? There's still people who will argue that the manuscript evidence says that this verse does not belong in the Bible. So we're going to look at some of that today. And if you really want to know more about this, you're going to find this is probably some of the most challenging stuff I teach is what I'm going to teach right now at the beginning of a video, which is, by the way, not smart on YouTube to put the hardest part first. But I'm not I'm not as YouTube smart as a lot of people are anyway. So, um, but the thing is, it does get a little complicated. Um, and what they'll say is, hey, we don't have it missing in any manuscripts, but we do have some ancient manuscripts where it's relocated. These verses 34 and 35, again, I'll put them on your screen and highlight them so you know which ones we're talking about. There they are. These verses, they'll say, are not missing in any manuscripts, but in some manuscripts, in a handful, they're relocated. So verses 34 and 35 are taken, and I'll scroll down now, and they're placed after verse 40, which is right before chapter 15. So this is this is true. There are a, a number of them that do that. Um, now, this has been known for a long time. And the most recent edition of what's called the UBS, this is this is a, the UBS. And I'm, you, you got to know this just for, for to, to make sense of what I'm telling you now. The UBS is like a shortcut. It, it, it's like a an apparatus that's there to quickly help scholars find out if a verse or set of verses is missing in any manuscripts or if it reads differently or a phrase reads differently in an ancient manuscript. And then what the UBS does is it will gather different manuscripts. It'll name them all. It'll tell you in these manuscripts, it reads this way. In those manuscripts, it reads that way. And then it will give a rating. Now, the rating there is actually highly respected among scholars. And the UBS gives a rating of, of 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 35. And it says, almost certain, which is about the highest rating you can give something. Almost certain. It's extreme they're extremely confident for good reason because these verses appear in every manuscript well but mike they're relocated in some manuscripts well most people would think that that just means that there might be a debate about where they belong do they belong does it belong after verse 34 or 33 rather or does it belong after verse 40 that would be the debate but really these people are using this as a way of arguing that it doesn't belong at all so I think you can feel the problem here. You're looking at these ancient manuscripts. Even if it was just you untrained, you would be like, it's in every manuscript. It's just in a different place in this small number of manuscripts. But we still should ask the question, what does it mean that it's in a different place in a small number of manuscripts? And how many manuscripts is that? So here we go into probably the most confusing part of today's video. Um, but I'll do my best to try to break it down, at least to the best of my understanding. Um, so Anthony Thistleton, he summarizes it this way, and I'll explain this after I read it to you. The basic facts are that the Western D-E-F-G and the later 88 and 4th century Ambrosiaster, he named seven manuscripts. Those are the names of the manuscripts, Western D-E-F-G, 88. These are all names of manuscripts. They displace verses 34 to 35 to after verse 40. However, and then he's going to talk about the other ones that have it in the traditional spot. The very early, the B46, which is um, about 200 AD. So we're talking 200 years prior to the other ones, the earliest of the other ones, um, along with a number of others. Okay, with Aleph, um, BA3388, MG, Vulgate, Old Syriac, and most other manuscripts, as in a bunch. There's a whole bunch of manuscripts that read these verses in their normal accepted place. So we have to recognize it's extremely imbalanced evidence. We have a small number of manuscripts that have it after verse 40, then we have a bunch of manuscripts and earlier manuscripts that have it in the traditional spot. And so 
yeah, that seems like it would answer the question. And this is, of course, I think where normal people would be like, I don't think I'm ever going to understand this manuscript stuff. But I hope I'm explaining it in a way that's um, simple. I always figure my audience is intelligent. You just aren't trained in this area. So if it just gets broken down in layman's terms, you're, you're not going to have a hard time understanding it. So hopefully that's the case. So how many is it really? That now, now here's the question. How do we explain that handful of manuscripts that has it in a new place after verse 40? The answer there is to realize that this handful of manuscripts, in turn, may only come from one source. Now, if that's true, that these manuscripts go, go back in time and they narrow down to coming from just one sort of source, then it's not actually that impressive. It just took one scribe one time to make this one change, which would mean that the original placement in in the middle or before the end of chapter 40, uh, 14 is where it belongs. All right, so here's here's a quote from uh, Anthony Thistleton on this. Um, he says, while others agree that verses 34 and 35 are an interpolation, few place the weight that fee does on a textual variant which wire with meticulous scholarship shows to rest on a single manuscript tradition. Okay, I'm, what I'm trying to do now is summarize a long debate. All right, Gordon Fee is a well-respected scholar and brother in Christ who has recently gone to be with the Lord. Um, so his argument, and he's a rare one to do this, but he takes his, his brilliance in textual criticism and he applies it to this passage and argues that these verses being in a different location in these different manuscripts shows it never really belonged in the first place. Now, he's pretty rare in that. In response, another scholar, A.C. Wire, went to the te to the trouble to discuss the ancestry of the manuscripts that have it in the, the new location after verse 40. And her conclusion was that, um, that they ultimately come down from a single manuscript tradition. So A.C. Wire says that other than um, manuscript 88, other than one, we'll talk about later, that's a weird one, all of the other manuscripts have a connection, and I'll put it on your screen now to explain it. And again, if this is boring you out of your mind, well, you could go uh, watch a cartoon uh, <laughs> or click ahead. But uh, here it says, she points out that every displacement manuscript, the ones that have it after verse 40, is either a Greek Latin bilingual or a Latin text. That is, they have commonalities. Um, that E is a direct copy of D. Direct copy, so that's really not evident, not evidence of a new manuscript. That F and G are so close to each other that it's widely agreed that they copied the same edited text. So they come from the same source. In practice, only D and G remain as two witnesses, which in turn almost certainly come from a single common archetype. That's pretty powerful because what it means is we shouldn't put any weight at all for normal people. Just don't put any weight at all on the idea that this has been moved to after verse 40. Um, you might be asking, but what about that other one? What about manuscript 88? You, you said that doesn't, that's not explained in the same way. Uh, manuscript 88, uh, AC Wire, I read her paper on this uh, and she gets into a, her book on this actually. I got it over here somewhere. Um, anyway, it was, uh, yeah, there it is. This was not that easy to find, by the way. And that's the nature of these obscure books. Um, anyway, in her book, she goes into a lot of detail on manuscript 88. You're welcome to check it out yourself in her book read it all you want. But she basically says it's a 12th century copyist, right? We're looking, we're talking 1200 years after the time of the New Testament, 12th century copyist, and that it shouldn't weigh in heavily on the issue. Basically for a number of different reasons. Yeah, this is not like giving us an insight into the original rendering of 1 Corinthians. It's far too late. Um, and from other reasons as well. Okay, so 
we can learn this from the manuscript evidence. Learn, a, there's a few things. This is a really good stuff. Okay, one, it's easy for an unlearned person on these particular topics to hear that it's in a different location and get sucked into believing it's not original. But most scholars rightly reject this idea. Okay, I don't always agree with most scholars, but more often than not, I do. <laughs> and when I don't agree with them, I will give the reasons why. I will try to build a case for why I think they got something wrong because I don't want you just to be taking it my word against their word. I want to look at the evidence. In this case, most scholars, it seems, are very much on target. They're very much correct. Bruce Metzger, who was one of the premier textual critics in history, super highly respected man, um, he thought it was just an example of a scribe, one scribe, who thought the passage flowed more easily in a different order. That is, the scribe thought for the sake of clarity, he would move these verses down because in his opinion, that would make it easier for people to understand. Doesn't mean he was right, but it would explain why the, dis the dislocation had happened. So let me put up what Bruce Metzger says about this. Uh, there it is. He says, such scribal alterations represent attempts to find a more appropriate location in the context for Paul's directive concerning women. Now, probably that scribe held to the more strict interpretation of the passage didn't see that it was in the context of prophecy, which we'll talk about later. And so he moved it because he wanted maybe, this is theoretical, but maybe he wanted to apply it more broadly than it, than it looks like you can when you read it in its context. That may be the case, but that shouldn't affect us. It shouldn't make us think that it doesn't belong in the passage at all. That, that would be a silly conclusion, I think. We don't have a single piece of manuscript evidence that lacks these verses. This is huge. This is kind of the whole story, end of story, like end of debate. You, you don't have a single manuscript that lacks verses 34 and 35. The earliest example of verse 34 and 35 being located after verse 40 is from the late 4th century. That's the Ambrosiaster one that he talked about. Late 4th century, whereas the earliest manuscript we have for 1 Corinthians has them in the traditional location, and it's from about 200 AD. Okay, so again, that's another piece of evidence to support that, yes, this belongs in your Bible. Other scholars have pointed out, and this is kind of a significant concern, if you cast out passages of Scripture that appear in every single manuscript we have, you threaten the rest of Scripture. You, under what policy do you now decide, what? why can't I just remove things from Galatians that I don't like? Why not? Like, what's the principle that keeps me from doing that? If it's found in every manuscript and I can still throw it out, that's a problem. That's a problem. Um, J.M. Ross concludes the following, and I liked, I liked what Ross said about this. We are bound to accept the unanimous testimony of the manuscripts, however deeply we may reg regret that Paul expressed this opinion. <laughs> and I just want to say, look, you and me have biases. I have my biases too. We all have our biases. And so do scholars, every single one of them. It doesn't mean I dismiss them, I ignore them. I just recognize they're not this elite group of people that are that, that have no bias. Just like I'm not. Um, we, we look at the evidence and we let the evidence over overwhelm the small number of scholars that are pushing this view. It just doesn't, it just doesn't fit. This text on face value would seem to utterly refute egalitarian views it seems as though there could be strong motive for egalitarians to find it not in the passage. Now, most don't do that, but it's understandable that bias could cause someone to do that. It's at least possible. And it looks, the evidence seems to, suppose, seems to support that that may be what's happening here. 
So if manuscript evidence doesn't help them, then what does? Um, hinge number two, to say that it doesn't belong in the Bible, um, some will ignore the manuscript evidence. Be, I mean, they won't ignore it. They'll accept it. They'll say, okay, fine. It's, all, it's there in every manuscript. But what they'll say is, but it doesn't look like something Paul wrote. It doesn't fit Pauline's style. It doesn't fit the, and I always thought Pauline was such a weird way to say, like, Paul, <laughs> really, something related to Paul, Pauline. I had an aunt named Pauline. At any rate, <laughs> so some scholars, for example, Konzelman, one scholar, acknowledge that they acknowledge that the manuscript evidence doesn't show it's an interpolation. Instead, they offer five ways, they might offer these five ways, here's five that I've pulled out as I've read, that they think the passage reveals it doesn't fit Paul's style. And they're basically saying, look, it doesn't look like something Paul would write. Like you guys know, on YouTube, you get I get scammers all the time who will imitate my face, put my name in their YouTube channel name, they put my face on their channel, and they'll comment in reply to you guys. It, I mean, every couple of days I have to like report and delete some or block some scammer. And they'll, they'll, they'll say stuff that doesn't sound like me. You read it and they're like, oh, but you know, cryptocurrency. And you're like, that doesn't sound like Mike. That doesn't fit Miking style. <laughs> That's probably not the right way to say that. Uh, so you get the idea. Like there, there's a way in which you go, this doesn't fit his style. Mike doesn't go, oh, blessed are you, brother. God has given me a word for you. You need to donate to this ministry you've never heard of, which doesn't exist, by the way. Um, I don't do this in my comment section. So that, that can be legitimate. You could say things don't fit the style. So here's the five ways that they'll say 1 Corinthians 14 verses 34 and 35 don't fit Paul's style. Five ways they could say it. Not everybody agrees. This is what I pulled out as I've been reading. So they might say the verses themselves differ from the main theme of chapter 12 through 14. That's a three-chapter section in 1 Corinthians. It has a main theme, and these verses don't fit that theme. They, they don't belong in there. They don't fit the theme. Um... There's a few problems, I think, with this view. The, the, the first problem is that removing passages of Scripture because you think they don't fit a theme that you're perceiving in the text is problematic for a couple reasons. One, you don't know for sure in the mind of the author if they don't fit that theme or not. Maybe the author thinks they're related. Maybe he has, obviously, Paul has more information about Corinth than you do. Maybe he thinks it does fit the theme. Um, the second issue is there's no parentheses, there, there's no footnotes in the text of Scripture. And so maybe he wanted to write something that didn't fit the whole theme, but he thought of and decided to include in there almost like a footnote, like a digression. And you would be removing digressions from Scripture if you think that they don't fit the theme, and that could be a problem. Um, but it does fit the theme. This is the other issue. This passage, to my knowledge, really does fit the theme we have in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. One of the themes is bringing order and control into the meetings of the Corinthian Christians. You guys know if you've read 1 Corinthians. Their meetings were chaotic, and they were frequently interrupted by people who thought they were spirit-led. That is, they thought they were spirit-led, but they were not submitting to order, which God does want to see in his church. So does that fit the theme of controlling who can speak and when they can speak and what topics they can speak on? It entirely fits that theme. That, that I, I don't understand this one, to be completely honest with you. It's just an empty claim, in my opinion. Um, having read Corinthians many times and taught it in the past, not online, of course, but um, it just seemed weird to me to, to say it doesn't fit the theme. One example of this is the last verse of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 14.40, it says, But all things should be done decently and in order. Paul is trying to bring decency and an order in the midst of the speaking that happens at church. 
so it's of course entirely appropriate of a couple of verses before that he talks about order and decency in the roles of women and men in the church during some kind of speaking we'll talk about what kind and try to figure out the answer to that riddle as we go today but there's a lot more um there are four key terms for those who want to say this doesn't fit pauline style i i think you're very wrong there's four key terms that are found in verses 34 and 35 actually i should leave this on your screen these are four phrases or terms in Greek, okay? The women should keep silent in the churches um, for they are not permitted to speak. Okay, that speak is interesting. That occurs there. It also occurs in verse um, 35, speak. In the Greek, the term is laleo, and that term is found, get this, 22 times in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 alone, not counting these two verses. So 24 times altogether. Does it fit the theme? <laughs> Obviously, he's talking about speaking. 22 times throughout 1 Corinthians 14, this laleo is used. And even if it was if it was 10 times, if it was five times, it would just be it would just go to show that it fits the theme. Paul's still talking about proper speaking in church. Sigao is another term we have, and we find it in verse 34. When we should keep silent. That word is sigao, to stop speaking or to keep silent or to refrain from speech in a particular context. It's not only used in verse 34, we also find it in verse 30, right here. Let the first be silent. There we go. So it's in verse 30, and we also find it in verse 28. If there's no one to interpret, each of them keeps silent in church. Keeping silence in church is a theme in this passage, so obviously it's going on. And if you'll catch uh, the way this works, in verse 28, they're supposed to stop speaking in tongues if there's no interpreter. In verse 30, just after that, um, they're supposed to stop prophesying if someone else has a prophecy. And in verse 34, where we're at today, that they say doesn't fit Pauline's style, he says the same kind of thing. And it's supposed to stop women from participating in some sort of specific kinds of speech. We'll talk about what sort as we go. I'll build my case for that. There's another, that's just two of the terms to show this fits Pauline style. Uh, a third one is in the church, the phrase in the church, which I kind of highlighted here. You have it in verse 34, but you also have it in verse 35, in church. En ecclesia is the Greek, and this is used also in verse 28, which I highlighted earlier, but I want to point out the in church part. Keep silent in church. Okay, so there's another Pauline style, like it fits the context, it fits the kinds of things Paul's talking about right here. Hupotasso is the word for submit in verse 34. Hupotasso. I like that word. Um, sounds like some sort of fun game that kids play in elementary school. And where is it? Uh, they should be in submission. Okay, maybe it's not as fun as I thought. But <laughs> but, but the word means submit. Okay, hupotasso. It's used in verse 34. Submission is a concept there. And also in verse 32, which everybody knows belongs and nobody argues against it, the spirit of the prophets are subject or hupotasso to the prophets, there's in submission. So it's again the there's a lot of consistency. So the second reason they'll offer, if, if you can't say Pauline style of um, the verse differs from the themes that are in the passage, well, obviously it compl it's completely consistent with the themes that backfires. But yet there are straight faced scholars who will argue in their work, not talking about any of those issues I just brought up. They won't usually acknowledge them, but. They'll argue in their work that this proves that Paul didn't write it. Um, that I consider to be irresponsible scholarship. Um, 
right? We are all accountable. Me too. I'm fully accountable for the things I say, and I will make mistakes, and I will teach wrong things sometimes, never intentionally, but it's inevitable. Have you ever known a single teacher other than Jesus and the apostles to not make mistakes in their teachings? I haven't. Um, but those that's a mistake. All right, let's talk about the second way they'll say it doesn't fit Paul's style. They'll say it interrupts the flow of instructions about the prophets. Now, this one I found super interesting because, of course, my view that I'm going to say is that it's actually about judging prophecy. But um, they'll say, hey, in this section, 1 Corinthians 14, it talks first about tongues and the use of tongues in the church. Then it talks about prophecy, has a whole section on prophecy. And it continues to the end of the chapter being about prophecy and then just summarizes how it's about tongues and prophecy. So it, it's, it's about that all the way through. And they'll say the manuscript evidence supports this idea that it breaks the flow of thought on prophecy because that's why some scribe, at least one, probably only one, moved these verses to after verse 40 because they felt like this stuff about women, it breaks the flow. It's not about prophecy. Um, now, it's one thing to say that some people would like it to flow better without those verses. It's another thing to say this. this let's understand the claim that some scholars are making when they say this, that the manuscript um, evidence is such that it, it, I say, as you read the passage, it's so wildly weird to see him talk about women here. It's so out of place. It so breaks the flow so crazily that you conclude that Paul never wrote it. Like, that's a big deal. Like, you and me write all the time. You write in text, you write in tweets, you write in, you know, whatever, wherever it is you're writing. You write stuff all the time. And sometimes you have things where you look back later and you go, yeah, that totally didn't fit the flow. Imagine if someone was going through your writings later and pulling stuff out because they felt that it didn't fit the flow. Um, there's probably tons of places in scripture, I mean, tons, where you can remove a section and it would flow better without it. I mean, as I've studied books, I'm teaching through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, and there's sections where I go, this whole chapter would flow better, in my opinion, if this section didn't, didn't exist. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have a purpose. It just means that flow is not the only purpose behind a text. That's all it means. There's other reasons to have things there. Um, there's no footnotes in scripture. They didn't have the convention of footnotes back then. There's just interruptions. I'm going to talk about this other thing. I'm going to sandwich it right in here. That's just how it works. It's just, it'll look like it's interrupting itself because they didn't have the conventions we have of writing. Um, in looking at ancient manuscripts, uh, there's a general rule that helps them decide which manuscript has the best um, the best reading? Okay, so you have, you have two different manuscripts. Here's a rule that'll help us understand how to interpret this. It breaks the flow idea. When two manuscripts read differently, um, like for instance, there's a section where Paul says, we were, we were like children among you. And in the Greek, uh, there's one manuscript where this verse says, we were horses among you. So not we were children among you. We were horses among you. Now, the, the this seems like it's easy to figure out which one's right. You know, you look at Paul and go, which one? Is Paul saying he was? they were like children among or horses among them? But in the Greek, the word for, you know, if, if I'm remembering this all correctly, the word for child and the word for horse, there's only one letter difference between the two. And so it's obvious to us, I'm teaching this, this, this principle of, of, of textual criticism, it's obvious to us which reading led to the other readings. Paul probably wrote children, and one guy wrote a wrong letter, and that's where the horse's reading came from. This principle is basically summarized like this. Whichever reading best explains the existence of the other readings, 
that's probably the authentic original reading. The children among you seems like it best explains the horses among you reading, given the unlikely unlikelihood of Paul saying that they were actually horses among them and the connection between the two words. So what reading best explains the others? Um, one manuscript tradition says this verse takes place after verse 40. And maybe some people do think it flows better after verse 40. All that really does is it explains why one guy moved it to after verse 40. It doesn't tell us Paul never wrote it. The difficulty of seeing it where it is and seeing that people might have wanted to move it elsewhere only gives us more reason to think it was authentic and original in its spot in 1 Corinthians 14. So that that's a big deal. Plus, uh, when we look at the judging prophecy view, we're going to conclude that this doesn't break the flow on prophecy at all. If, if you follow my reasoning on this, if you think that view is correct, then you can remember this and say, hey, it doesn't interrupt the flow at all. In fact, you need it there in the prophecy section or you will not understand it and you will misapply it to women. All right, let's look at the third way they'll say it doesn't fit Pauline style. Um, the verses they say logically contradict 1 Corinthians 11.5. So here we go. Logical contradiction. Therefore, Paul didn't write. And they'll say it's this one. I don't know why they don't just throw out verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 11. Um, but here it says the women should keep silent in the churches, right? And it says, hey, if they have something they want to you know, ask, ask their husbands at home. And it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. And they go, well, that's a total contradiction from what we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 11.5, which says, Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, implying that women can what? Pray and prophesy with their heads covered, which means they're speaking in church openly and prophetically in a gathering. I think in a gathering. Now, we went over 1 Corinthians 11 in great detail in the head covering video I did, my longest video I've ever done so far, <laughs> over six hours long. Um, and so you're welcome to check that out. But you can see here how this would work. It's a contradiction, therefore Paul must not have written it. Um, there's a few problems with this view. Um, it's only a contradiction if you take the most extreme and a view that most people reject, most people reject, about 1 Corinthians 14. So by pushing an extremist view of the passage, they then make it a contradiction with the idea that a woman can prophesy in church. Yeah, but... What if we don't believe that that view is right? Well, then this whole argument falls apart. So yeah, I don't take the most extreme possible interpretation. And those who do, will talk about how they reconcile 1 Corinthians 11.5 with their view later on when we get to uh, view number four, the utter silence view. Um, also, another problem with this saying it's a logical contradiction is if it's selective silence in judging prophecy, there's then no contradiction, Okay. In fact, all the other views would, would provide that there's no contradiction. If you have any view other than that extreme view, whether you think it's education or clatter, or you think it's, um, uh, let, let's say, the, the, the complementary position of judging prophecy, there is therefore no contradiction taking place. And there's something else going on here too, which is, um, I hate to say this in, in this fashion, um, I'm afraid people will take it as a personal attack, and I don't mean it that way. There's a certain amount of lack of perspective or perhaps hubris, in looking at an ancient writing, concluding there's a contradiction, rather than trying to understand how these things belong together and looking at it in a more nuanced fashion. I think we have to grant that these ancient writers are more intelligent than we often think they are, especially when they're writing scripture. 
You know, like it's like those who say that Genesis one and Genesis two are in utter contradiction. And you're like, this is where you go. Like you, like how brainless would the author of Genesis have to be to put chapters one and two together when they're a contradiction? Instead, you should say, no, there's a lesson for us to learn here. The reason why these look different is for, for, for a purpose. We should discover the purpose and not just casually and with a sense of hubris and shallowness conclude contradiction and then run away. So I think that that's a problem um, that I, I see affects people sometimes. Okay, the fourth reason they have, fourth reason they have for why they think this doesn't fit Paul's style, I think all of them fail, is they say Paul would never appeal to the law to endorse or validate church discipline. I've seen this in a number of sources, different people saying it, including even in comment sections. Paul would never appeal to the law to endorse or validate church discipline, right? Because Paul thought you should, what, unhitch from the Old Testament? No, he didn't. Uh, he didn't have that, that perspective, not the Andy Stanley view. That's for sure, actually. Um, Paul would never treat Christians as though they're under the law, but he absolutely appeals to the law to give instructions to Christians on behavior in other ways. There's, that is, we can learn from and apply truths we learn from the scripture and from the Old Testament law without being under the law. That's the balance. And so let me give you an example of this. Here's where he appeals to the law, 1 Corinthians 9, verse, starting in verse 8. He appeals to the law to endorse or validate some sort of church behavior. 1 Corinthians 9, 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? Was uh, It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. And he goes on to talk, what's he talking about? He's talking about paying people who do ministry. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? There are those who who use ministry to become uh, filthy rich, right? And 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 the thing is, they're never ashamed of the obnoxious amount of money they're paid. They're they're doing. Let's say they're doing a ministry like I'm doing, and they're getting paid like a million dollars a year for it. And that's never going to happen in my case, um, regardless of how big the ministry gets, because um, it would be wrong. But there are those who um, who are doing that. And they're never ashamed of it. They, they flaunt it. They wear super expensive jewelry and drive these really expensive cars and have these crazy costly suits and stuff like that. They, they always flaunt it. But then there is the normal local ministry people who aren't like this for the most part. And there are those who think that they should just live in utter poverty or they should never get paid for the things that they do. Even if they spend 50 hours a week, 60 hours a week serving and helping people, working to serve and bless them, that they should get nothing. Paul's pushing against that idea. He's like, yes, you don't need to make them into impoverished sufferers where they're being martyrs just to become a pastor or, or a ministry servant uh, who does full-time ministry. We don't need to do that. And he appeals to the law to make this case. The law says it, but the, but we're not under the law because it's the, the actual law is saying, is talking about um, don't muzzle an ox which treads out when it treads out the grain. This is the idea of keeping an uh, ox from eating the food as it's plowing. If that's wrong, here's the principle Paul's getting. If that's wrong, and we get this from the law, then wouldn't it be wrong to do that to a human? That same kind of thing. So Paul uses the law to help establish a principle. We're not under the law. So are you going to say Paul didn't write that? 1 Corinthians 9.9? Paul would never use the law to endorse or validate church discipline. Now I have to start removing even more scripture. You see, these rules aren't coming from Paul. They're coming from you. 
We're going to talk more about why Paul refers to the law and what law is he referring to in 1 Corinthians um, 14. We'll do that later on. That's going to come much later. Let's look now at the fifth and final reason that I've seen for why people say we should remove this passage from Scripture because it doesn't fit Paul's style. And it's because of this phrase. And here, um, tell me what you think of this. Paul uses the phrase, where is it? Um, 33b, the church of the saints, the churches of the saints. And they say that phrase is a phrase Paul wouldn't use. So that's evidence to support the idea, along with all these other things, they put it all together. See, Paul never wrote this passage. Of course, every one of them fails substantially. Um, but do you, do you buy this? Churches of the saints. Paul wouldn't have said that. Like this seems on the on the face of it like such a terrible argument to me. I, I'm sorry. Look, sometimes um, in scholarship, we we're, as I'm reading scholarship, I'm not pretending I'm the scholar here, okay? But as I'm reading the scholars and trying to understand things, they entertain silly ideas as a way of trying to be unbiased. And sometimes it's okay to to just say, "Hey, guys, that's silly. Like this is silly. Let's talk about this a little bit." Okay, Paul constantly uses the term church. Talks about church all the time. Uses ecclesia all the time. He uses the term saints all the time. When he says church, who's he talking about? Christians. When he says saints, who's he talking about? Christians. All the time. Paul calls all the believers saints. Here, here it is in 1 Corinthians, since we're in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. And he writes a letter who to who? The church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. Does Paul believe that the Corinthian church is the church of the saints? Absolutely. This is his theology. That's what I'm saying. This is his theology. Now, he doesn't use that phrase, church of the saints, in other places. It only occurs here. But that's not that big of a deal. These are the churches of the saints. Like It's, it's, a, it's a concept that is thoroughly Pauline. You're just saying that he doesn't usually put those words together in that order, but Paul has all kinds. He does this all the time, where he'll have a phrase he only uses one time. That happens very frequently in Paul. That's not a big surprise. It's not a big deal. So we have two truths. Right? Both of these nouns, church and saint, are in Paul's regular vocabulary to refer to the same group of people. And the concept that the church is this are the saints, the church is full of the saints, is consistent with Paul's teaching on the nature of the church consisting of those he calls saints. Okay, so Paul has... Uh, this is a thoroughly Pauline style all, all throughout the passage. I don't see any legitimacy to this view. I think this view is ultimately reckless. Do the same scholars who pull out the church, the phrase, the church of the saints, and they say, well, that's, Paul doesn't use that phrase. Do they do this every time Paul has a unique phrase, a one-time used phrase, or is it just when it's a passage that is problematic for them? Um, I have a theory on that. So this view, in my opinion, isn't just wrong, um, and it's actually reckless. It's actually reckless because it seeks to remove a passage a lot of people would be happier to see gone, which I don't know about you, but I react by holding on even stronger to those passages. Hey, man, if there's something about us that doesn't like what God wrote here, then we probably need it even more. We probably need to hold on to it even more tightly. We probably need to talk about it more, probably need to understand it better, not less, and certainly not remove it from Scripture. If you like the idea of removing these verses... I just encourage you who are listening to be completely transparent with yourself about your motives. 
how much do you want this passage gone? How much would that make you happy? <laughs> and 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 just be aware of that. Just acknowledge your own internal bias because I don't think there's any good reason to actually get rid of it. And you might say, but Mike, Gordon Fee thought this didn't belong. And he was like one of the one of those really well-renowned, love the Lord, genuine believer, all these great things, great qualities, you know, and, and genuinely great qualities, and a scholar in this field on textual criticism in particular. Um, so how do you explain the fact that he thought that this belonged in scripture? Well, we all make mistakes. Me too. Okay. There's going to be things where years later I'm going to go, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I didn't realize I was wrong there. But here's what Dale Carson uh, says about Gordon Fee. He says, with all respect to a brother whose, a text, whose textual critical prowess is far greater than my own, his arguments in this case sound a bit like the application of a first class mind to the defense of a remarkably weak position. I think that's a great summary of the interpolation view. I think that's fantastic. There's some first-class minds, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are pushing a remarkably weak position. And I cannot stress enough how much this view, the interpolation view, would put so much of Scripture in question because you could use these same principles, the same sloppy reasoning to remove any passage you feel like you don't want just about. All right, we're now going to talk about the quotation-refutation view. This is our second view to analyze, and let me put it up on your screen right here. Basically, this view to remind you is the perspective that, hey, most of what you're reading, pretty much everything in verses 34 and 35, Paul is refuting that. He's not supporting it. He's actually arguing against it. And so the complementarians who would say, hey, this is talking about role differences between men and women, the egalitarians would say, yes, and Paul refutes those. So if we look at the passage itself, you can see this. Let's read it again to refresh ourselves. Plus, some may have just clicked here. Uh, I, you know, you can move around the video as you need. Um, so let's read it again and remind ourselves of how this view works. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. And then Paul's like, nah, all that's wrong. You know, and there's a debate over this part, whether it belongs in this phrase or not. Um, or if it's part of a previous section, we'll get there later on. Um, it's actually not key for for this issue. Uh, Beth Allison Barr is one person who promotes this view. So we're going to be looking at some of the stuff that she says, is, as well as some others. And let's look at hinge number one of this view. The first hinge is a secular quote. Um, <clears throat> so this is this is the thing Beth Allison Barr promotes, and she's not alone in this. I'm just I just want you to be able to point you to you know scholars, so you can see that these views are real. I'm <laughs> not making them up. Um, she says that the RSV represents this view in particular. And so let me put the RSV on your screen. And um, I'll read it the way that she has done so in her classes. She says that she'll actually read the RSV with certain inflections so that in, the, in classes, students will go, oh, and they'll understand the refutation view. So she'll start, I think probably would start at verse 34, my guess. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, even as the law says. If there's anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. What? Did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only ones it has reached? You see how it sounds like a refutation now. Verse 36 sounds like it's saying like, what? <laughs> you know, jeepers, how did you come to that conclusion? So... That's how it's read, and she thinks the RSV actually, specifically this translation, supports this view. Um, the first thing I want to point out 
in response to Beth Allison Barr and in her case for this in her book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, which is a strongly egalitarian book and it's very polemic as well. I've talked about it before, but, um, and I don't say that in a good way, um, unfortunately, but the, um, uh, the RSV, I don't think the RSV translators were trying to communicate what she's saying because notice that they assign this, this section here as in all the churches of the saints, the last part of verse 33 they assign it as the beginning of the sentence of verse 34. I don't think when they said what in verse 36, they meant it as a contradiction because the quote starts with, as in all the churches of the saints, which is a statement that every church does this. The point here is just to say simply that um, it doesn't fit the idea that this is a quote of the Corinthians if it begins with a phrase, all the churches of the saints. Like this is what's everywhere. And so of course it's in the, going to be in the Corinthian church as well. This makes a lot out of the word what. Ultimately the RSV just has the word what um, as an exclamation. It it doesn't do all the labor, all the work that, Bella, that Beth Allison Barr wants it to do to show that it's a refutation. Uh, my point here is just to say, I don't think the RSV is actually supporting that view, not, from, not as far as I can tell. Most translations, by the way, would also agree with the RSV here. Most translations, I looked up a bunch of them, will assign this phrase, as in all the churches of the saints, to the following section, not the previous section. There's a little debate on that, which implies that this statement about women, this whole thing, this is something that's true across the churches in general. The The second thing she'll do um, it, after explaining the thing and using the RSV is she'll use this, this, this secular quote that I alluded to a moment ago. And this secular quote is a quote from Livy. Let me just put this on screen. And, and basically what she's going to be saying is, Hey, here's a secular quote that looks a lot like the Corinthian quote. Therefore, it's an echo of the, of the Corinthian quote is an echo of the secular quote. It's not from Paul. It's the Corinthians quoting this secular source or this uh, non-Christian source. I should really say non-Christian. At any rate, here is the quote. So this quote can be found in Beth Allison Barr's book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. But what she's quoting is Livy, this ancient source that the Corinthians she's thinking might be quoting. So here's how you can see there's a similarity that's going on there. I'm just going to quote the highlighted portion at the moment where he says, could you not have asked your own husbands the same thing at home? Th this is so similar to the phrase we have in 1 Corinthians, which says, and I'll put that back on your screen here, right? So you can remind yourself of it. If there's anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home. So we've got a, an interesting connection. And she says, hey, this is, this is an echo. Let me share with you what Beth Allison Barr says about this. It isn't word for word, but it is close, a definite echo of Livy. In other words, Paul's words are drawing from his Roman context. Um, this is part of her case that, hey, it wasn't Paul. This isn't Paul's idea. This is Paul responding to an idea that's present in the culture, right? So he's, it's, a, it's a reference to a quote, an idea that's not from Paul. So you get the point. Uh, she uses a similarity to say that the passage is it represents extra biblical ideas that the Corinthians have, which Paul is refuting. It's not clear why she doesn't just conclude that Paul is the one quoting Livy. Um, I, I don't. I don't see in her work where she mentions this. Maybe she did and I missed it. That's fair. It's possible. Why she doesn't just think, well, maybe Paul's quoting Livy. Maybe Paul actually agrees with Livy here. I'm, I'm not saying he does. I'm just saying we would want to at least eliminate that possibility if we're going to use the fact that this is similar to Livy to say that it was the Corinthians and Paul's refuting it. It just seems like there's there's a jump there that's not evidenced. Um, I searched to confirm 
though, how parallel this quote is. Is it really an echo? Is 1 Corinthians 14 really echoing Livy? And I think it's not. So let me walk you through the reasons why I think we should set aside this argument, and I hope you'll consider it. The translation I'll be using of Livy comes from Evan T. Sage. He's a PhD professor of Latin, head of the Department of Classics in the University of Pittsburgh. And the um, quote that he has from Livy, let's look at it here. He actually reads it differently. He translates it, could you not have made the same requests each of your own husbands at home? Now, that might seem like a, like the same thing, but it's actually not. Questions are not requests, although requests might come in the form of questions. It's a specific kind of thing. So in 1 Corinthians, we have women asking questions to learn things because Paul says if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. In Livy, it's requests, as in they're asking for something to be done for them, something they want to have happen. It's not questions for educational purposes, it's requests. Isn't that interesting? Now, if you keep reading, I don't know what translation she's using. I'm not saying she's using a bad one or whatever, but let's follow this difference. Let's chase this down a little bit more. Now, if you keep reading this section of Livy and we expand a bit, we'll see it's not about asking questions to learn anything. The whole section supports the idea, and I'll put it all on your screen here, small font, but I'll read it to you, that what's really going on is these women are lobbying for political things, and it has nothing to do with learning or asking questions for informational purposes. So this is the longer quote from Livy in its context. And yet, not even at home, if modesty would keep matrons within the limits of their proper rights, did it become you to concern yourselves with the question of what laws should be adopted in this place or repealed? Our ancestors permitted no woman to conduct even personal business without a guardian to intervene in her behalf. This is Livy now, not Paul. <laughs> they wished them to be under the control of fathers, brothers, husbands, we, heaven help us, allow them now even to interfere in public affairs, yes, and here's what he's bothered by, and to visit the forum and our informal and formal sessions. What else are they doing now on the streets and in the corners and other corners except urging the bill of the tribunes and voting for the repeal of the laws? The, the thing that Livy's, this quote in Livy that it's, that it's concerned with is women who are lobbying for political things in the government. So they're not asking questions to learn, which means that the connection, there's similar terminology being used, but the connection to 1 Corinthians, if they have any questions, if they want to learn anything, have any questions, let them ask their husbands at home. That's a completely different idea. The concept's different. What I'm suggesting is this does not seem like a definite echo. Um, that was <clears throat> Beth Allison Barr's claim. It's a definite echo. That's her word-for-word -word statement there. Um, it's about lobbying with requests, whereas 1 Corinthians 14 is concerned with some sort of questioning to learn things during church services. Again, I'll put that back on your screen just to make very clear. If they desire, if there's anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home. We'll talk about how I would explain why, when, in what context this is considered a problem um, uh, in a little bit. So, or in a long bit, we'll see how long this video is. So in Livy, they're not asking questions to learn, they're lobbying for their agenda, and he'd rather them ask their husbands, not so their husbands can teach them or inform them, but so that their husbands can go forward and be the ones doing the lobbying, right? Or just grant the request if it's like maybe they want something for themselves that he just says yes or no. That's what Livy's shooting for. Similar words, yes, but very different meanings. And if the concepts are different in the passages, then I, I don't think it's fair to call it an echo. Just similar words, husband and request or question, which are two different kinds of things. They're, yeah, it, it just doesn't quite fit. So her case 
that this is an echo of Livy seems wrong. Um, also, even if it was an echo of Livy, why would that mean that Paul's not the one echoing Livy? Why would we assume it's the Corinthians echoing Livy? Um, it doesn't make sense. It also seems to rob this passage of its, his, of, of its prophetic context, the whole statements about prophecy and everything. So it's just, it's confusing. Um, and I don't think it works. But there are other arguments that people offer for the refutation view, for the idea that Paul is quoting them and refuting them. And so let's get into some Greek stuff here. Um, this gets into that translation in the RSV where they translate it as, what? What? And I still have the RSV on your screen right now. Um, that That is hey in Greek. It's just the word hey. Um, or is it a? My font's too small for me to see uh, at the moment. Probably hey. Um, anyway, verse 36, that word, that one word is taken as a, what's called a disjunctive particle. And no, you don't have to remember all that, but just know it's disjunctive. I mean, it's like, it's like seen as it contradicting what comes before it. So this, this little word is meant to be like, what? Like I'm contradicting what came before it. And that's how the people who argue for the refutation view will take this word, this word in the Greek. Um, there's going to be some problems with that, um, but just acknowledge first that one word is doing a very large amount of heavy lifting. This is why it's a hinge point. In fact, I, I didn't put it on your screen. I, I worked so hard on these graphics, I should probably put them on your screen. Where is the hinge point? Hinge. I, did, I guess I didn't do one. No, I didn't do. Okay, well, whatever. Greek stuff. There it is. Oh, Greek stuff. Okay, hinge point. Sorry for wasting your time. Um so this, this is a hinge point, okay? The secular quote doesn't seem to pan out. It seems like a reach to connect those two ideas. I'm sure you, you can see that, I think. Hopefully a reasonable person would, would agree with me, I hope. But the Greek stuff is another hinge point. Uh, significant because one word carrying massive weight. It, it, the, the whole idea that Paul's contradicting what comes before is how they interpret on this issue that one word. So one word refutes every element of what came before. Check that out. Again, one word. What? Notice Paul, as he goes on, he never addresses whatever's going on in all the churches. He never addresses um, why, why they are permitted to speak or, or, or what. He never addresses the statement that women should be subordinate. Doesn't Paul teach that elsewhere? But he doesn't, he's refuting it here, but doesn't, he doesn't explain what he's refuting. He doesn't address what the law is saying or why the Corinthians are referring to the law. He doesn't address whether they should ask their husbands things at home. He doesn't address whether it's shameful for women to speak in church. He just says, what? And that's the entire contradiction. That's the entire re rebuttal. It's, or, or it's or it's 95% of the rebuttal. Because this phrase, did the word of God originate with you? It doesn't address any of those concerns over here. Any of those specific, specific concerns, it would only serve to say, no, I mean, you, you're making up your own rules. Except how can he accuse them of making up their own rules? When they started the phrase with us in all the churches of the saints, that is if you take the RSV. So yeah, it, it seems like that one word, hey, is doing a lot of heavy lifting. I guess that's my main point right there. Okay, Walter Kaiser um, supported this interpretation. Uh, and and he, Walter Kaiser is someone who like, I love and appreciate personally. I don't say this like as an empty statement. Okay, I don't make those statements about people. I don't actually believe that about. Um, but Walter Kaiser, he supported the interpretation, the egalitarian view that Paul's refuting the stuff that comes before it. So this was in an article um, in Christianity Today, October 3rd, 1986. That's where Walter Kaiser did this. And he he sought to show that the hey of verse 36 means that it's a contradiction to verses 34 and 35. Again, I'll leave it on screen just to, you know, so you guys can have it there and marinate in the passage. Um, so 
Interestingly, one of the things that Walter Kaiser did to support his view is he quoted a Greek lexicon called Thayer's. Now, Thayer's is a decent Greek lexicon, no complaints there, but he wanted to show that the disjunctive particle may appear. And here's how Kaiser quoted Thayer's. This is a bit tricky, what happened next. Quote, before a sentence contrary to the one preceding it. And there you go. Well, like, I mean, that that on the surface looks very much like Kaiser's like just doing good Greek stuff here. This disjunctive particle is used, hey, is used before the sentence that is contradicting the one preceding it. That would seem to support his his stuff entirely, but D.A. Carson did some homework on this and he weighed in on it and rightly points out that Walter Kaiser only partly quoted Thayer's, probably an unintentional mistake. That happens. We all make those mistakes. I do too. And the full quote refutes Kaiser's position and reinforces that this view just doesn't actually work. So let's look at that now. This is what um, uh, Carson says about Kaiser's view. However, Kaiser has not quoted enough of Thayer's context to convey his meaning correctly. To quote in full, Thayer says that the disjunctive, that word hey, may appear, quote, before a sentence contrary to the one just preceding it to indicate that if one be denied or refuted, the other must stand. And the example here is Matthew 20, 15, where it's, if thou wilt not grant this, is thine eye, etc., in other words, Thayer does not say that the disjunctive particle in question is here used to contradict the preceding clause and thus dismiss it, but that it is used to introduce a sentence contrary to the one just preceding it, not in order to, t- to dismiss the preceding, but in order to, quote, indicate that if one be denied or refuted, the other must stand. Let me put this in more normal terms. In other words, the word hey here, it indicates further support for the preceding argument, not a contradiction of it. Let me give you an example of how this works in a passage you'll know well, which is Romans 3, 28 and 29. This is the same that the word hey is being used here, right? In verse 29, I'll put it on your screen here, right? I've highlighted the word hey, okay? It's it's here, it's translated as or, you know, like maybe the RSV will put it as what? Um, I wonder, actually, I'm curious now, I want to see. No, they translate it as or in that case, just what in the other case, okay? So in verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or, hey, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. How is this word functioning in this sentence? It's the same as it is in 1 Corinthians. It's meant to say, if you reject the stuff before this word, then you need to accept the stuff after this word. And of course, you won't accept what's after this word. I'm showing you that the logical conclusion of rejecting what I've just said is to embrace this ridiculousness I'm about to say. If you're going to tell me that you can only be justified by the works of the law, well, then you're basically saying God is only the God of the Jews because he didn't give the law to everybody else. Oh, well, I would never say God. is. He created all mankind, Adam and Eve, and everyone came from them. Ah, so then you also see the problem with saying, right? Do you get the idea? In 1 Corinthians, it's the same thing. What Paul is saying in this passage is all these statements, the women should keep silent, da, 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 all this stuff. And then he says, or, or hey, if you want to reject this statement, all that I've just said, you have to embrace the silly idea that the word of God came with you and you're the only ones it reached. Now you understand the, the function of the term. This is how it's used 
in scripture. This is how Thayer's even says it's used. And Kaiser's, the thing he quotes to support the alternate view doesn't work. It actually backfires against him, which has happened a lot in this series um, on, uh, on women in ministry. So Paul uses this term lots of times. He uses it to reinforce, not to refute what comes before it. To reinforce, not to refute what comes before it. Thayer's, um, in the same article that Kaiser quotes, that resource, Thayer's lexicon, it goes on to give six other examples of Paul using this disjunctive particle. I'll put them on your screen. You can look up these words, these these uh, verses. These All these examples are where Paul is reinforcing a thing, not refuting it. So the hay does not refute. Carson concludes, The brute fact is that in every instance in the New Testament where the disjunctive particle in question is used in a construction analogous to the passage at hand. So every time it's used the way it is in 1 Corinthians 14, its effect is to reinforce the truth of the clause or verse that precedes it. That is, that is very powerful to be able to say that. Every example that, that's analogous, that's similar to 1 Corinthians 14. So this um, Greek hinge point, the first issue of the Greek, it, that does not support their view at all, and, it, and it, it needs to be set aside. There needs to be some other argument for it. Not the Livy quote, that's not even probably an echo. Even if it was, why wouldn't it just be Paul echoing it? You need an argument for that. Um, and uh, the Greek stuff so far doesn't. But what about this other, there's one more Greek thing they'll say before we get to the third hinge point. And the the other the Greek thing they say is, hey, that phrase that you see in 1 Corinthians 14, where he says, or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it has reached? Let me highlight the word ones here for you. Okay, the reason why I highlight that is because some say that's talking about men, not people. They will say, um, they'll even translate it kind of like this. What, did the word of God originate with you men only? That would lend credence to the idea that men are the source of the quote above. And he's, he's like, what? I reject that. What do you think you men are the only source of the word of God or the only people it reached? You get you get the idea? So verses 34 and 35 are taken as nonsense that men in Corinth are spouting. In verse 36, Paul says, yeah, the word of God doesn't come to and from only men. And we can think of like Mary Magdalene, the first to tell of Jesus's resurrection, or we can think of women who participated in scripture and carrying scripture and all that. So this is because this word um, only, I highlighted ones, I probably should have highlighted only here. The word only is masculine in gender. Now in English, it's a little weird for us. Um, we don't really do the masculine, feminine you know, words the way that say in Spanish they do and in Greek they do. It's very normal. So when we hear about a masculine gender, we in English can be sort of susceptible to thinking it means more than it means. <laughs> so um, yes, it's the masculine gender, but that doesn't do as much heavy lifting as they want it to. Let me read to you, um, let's see, a response to this from Dale Carson as well, who did a really great job on this. I think it seems like a great resource to me. He says that the word for only is masculine is irrelevant. It's just irrelevant, he says. People considered generically are regularly found in the masculine gender in Greek. It is more natural to read verse 36 as addressed to the church, not just to the men in the church. Um, all throughout Corinthians, Paul just talks to the people in the church in general. It's just written as in general to the saints, all of them, male and female, all throughout. Unless he specifies he's talking about some other group, we wouldn't really be warranted in assuming such. And that word only, as Dale Carson points out, is the typical way of saying male and female 
or male, only context would create a limitation. So it seems that people are reading into it. That view seems very forced. Okay, but there's a third hinge. There's a third hinge, Pauline style. Just like the in the refutation view, they appealed to Pauline style. Um, here, there's an appeal to Pauline style, but for different purposes and in a different way. There's three points some people offer to say Paul would not have said what we have in verses 34 and 35. Therefore, he's probably quoting someone else and disagreeing with them. Now, this is interesting because this is something you'll be more susceptible to if you're a strong egalitarian with all the other passages in Scripture that we've already covered. If you disagreed, say, with my research and understanding, um, then you're going you're gonna to be very inclined to think, yeah, Paul wouldn't have said something like that. But if you're more complementarian, then you're going to be less inclined to think, you know, that this Pauline style thing has any sort of merit to it. So let's talk about the three points that they offer. Uh, first, they say it just doesn't seem like the kind of thing Paul would say for this. They emphasize, to be honest, clumsy interpretations. I would call I would call them clumsy interpretations. That's my subjective opinion here. That silence women entirely. I think this is this is an interpretation that I think doesn't work. Although I know some churches have 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 held it and tried to apply it. Um, but this is the view that yeah, utterly silencing women in all aspects in church, and. Yeah, that seems to contradict things that Paul says, like when he talks about women prophesying in church. Like, well, how can they prophesy in church if he's going to silence them here? But I think the simple thing is you say, oh, well, that's because he's not silencing them in all contexts in church. It's the specific context of judging prophecy. I'll build my case for that later. Um, so the idea of limiting women's participation in leadership, that fits what Paul says elsewhere really perfectly, if you ask me, at least based on my understanding of all the passages we've painstakingly gone over so far in this series. The second argument they'll have after saying, well, it doesn't seem like something Paul would say, they'd say, secondly, um, Gordon Fee says this, he argues that when Paul refers to the law, this is interesting, he usually provides a specific quote from scripture. Whenever he says the law, he'll like quote a passage. He doesn't just say the law. Like the law says, and he quotes something specific from the Old Testament. Therefore, Paul is likely just quoting someone else. Um, while I know that many people find this one very, very impressive, um, I have to be honest and say that I, I don't see any reason to believe that. Um, is this really, okay, is it a typical habit in Paul? Yes. It is a typical habit in Paul that when he gives the law says, he usually quotes a passage. I do the same thing. When I go, the Bible says, I mo most often quote a passage. Sometimes I'm in a hurry. Sometimes something else is going on. And I just summarize something the Bible says. I go, da-da-da, the Bible says so. I don't do that as often. But why would we think there's a rule? Paul can't do that. And if he does, he's quoting someone else. But why wouldn't Paul require them to quote a passage or talk about it afterwards? It just seems a little bit artificial. So we do, uh, the, the follow-up though is this. Do we have an explanation for why in this one instance, Paul would refer to the law, I'll back up and show you, as the law also says, but not quote a specific passage or verse from the Old Testament. And I think that we do have a reason, and the reason is Paul already gave them the verse in the passage we studied last time in this series, 1 Corinthians 11. So we're going to go back to 1 Corinthians 11 and see in the same letter, right, in the same letter a few chapters ago, Paul already told them about what verses he's talking about when he says the law says in 1 Corinthians 14. So let's look at those in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 through 10. He says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. What's he referring to? Genesis chapter 2. 
Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Genesis chapter 2 as well. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I went over this passage in detail. It's connection verse 7, 8, 9, 10. It's connection to the Old Testament, all that. This is where Paul already has dealt with a um, explaining gender role differences and grounding it in the creation's order in Genesis 2. So when Paul later says, the, as the law says, he probably is just appealing to what he already said a few chapters earlier. He doesn't need to repeat those same verses. I think that's a, a legitimate explanation. I don't see how that's so far-fetched. Um, so I think the second argument about Pauline style doesn't work. The third argument, this is also from Gordon Fee. He says, and I quote, Nowhere else does he appeal to the law in this absolute way as binding on Christian behavior. So this is different. This isn't about whether he quotes a specific text or not. It's rather, Paul just doesn't use the law like that. Paul would never use the law to give us binding Christian behavior. Um, this is similar to an argument we heard earlier, but I need to cover it because some people will click around. And so Paul's using the term law in the sense here of scripture. I'll, I'll defend this view later. Well, right now, actually, we'll talk about this. Not in the sense of being under the law of Moses. And Paul does this. He tells in the same breath, tells Christians we're not under the law, but he will then use scripture to establish truth that he wants Christians to obey. Principles, even though they're not under the law, they're not placed positionally under the law. And if you're interested in more on this, I have a whole, I'll do my two videos I've done on how to understand the Old Testament law. I'll link those down below as well, if I can remember. Um, but he does this, for example, in the same book, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 and 11. Now, if this is true, then it should defeat Gordon Fee's statement that, hey, Paul wouldn't have said this because he doesn't appeal to the law as binding on Christian behavior. 1 Corinthians 9, 8, he says, do I say these on my own authority? And I've read this earlier, but I got to read it again for the sake of thoroughness. Um, does not the law say the same? The law say the same. Here he's appealing to what? The law. And he's appealing to what? Something is binding on Christians. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen God is concerned? No, he's talking about pastors getting paid, basically, or, or ministers getting paid. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in, ho in hope of sharing in the crop. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? And he goes on to explain why he didn't do that as, a, as an outreach thing. He, he, wouldn't, he would work with his own hands and provide his own means. But Paul is clearly appealing to, um, did I not put that on your screen? Paul is clearly appealing to Christians to learn from the principles of the law, but does this put them under the law? No, because the letter of the law is about a muzzling an ox. He's talking about principles that we can learn from the law. This doesn't make me under the law, but it lets me learn from the beauty and goodness of God's law. Anyway, this, this is, again, I'll put my video series down below, but it is consistent with Paul to at least appeal to the law as a way of establishing some truth about Christian behavior, especially when he's just talking about the laws and something that God has taught us in the Old Testament scriptures. So at some point, I have to tackle this um, because this gets into the debate in a few different places, but I'll just tackle it here. What does Paul mean when he says law here? Because some people think he means Roman law. Some people think it means Jewish law, like maybe it was the Corinthians appealing to Roman law. The law says the woman should be in submission. Um, some people think it means local custom. Some people think it means the Old Testament or the Old Testament law specifically, like scripture in general, or maybe specifically the Pentateuch. And 
it's like, where in the Old Testament does it say? Or in the Pentateuch specifically, like, does this, is there a Leviticus verse that says this about women speaking in church? Like, what, what is it? What is it referring to? So let's run through several of these options here. Um, could Paul have meant Roman law, or could whoever's quoting First Corinthians, whoever's you, that quote's from, could they have meant Roman law? Um, well, Paul himself never appeals to Roman law like that. He uses the term law many, many times, but he never says the law says and repeals to like governmental law or Roman law. That doesn't mean it's impossible, but it would be nice to have an example of that sort of usage because if you don't have an example and you have Paul using a familiar phrase like the law says, and he's used it even earlier in 1 Corinthians, and they would have definitely known he was talking about scripture then, it would seem artificial to read a different meaning into it in this passage. Um, yeah, that would seem odd. Is it Jewish? We also don't know what law that would be specifically. Um, Jewish law is, at least I don't think we do. I wouldn't hang my argument on that. Um, some say it was Jewish law. So Jewish law would be that which it includes like Pharise Pharisaical traditions, like the, the, what they call the oral law. Um, like when they said Jesus violated the law by healing on the Sabbath, but he wasn't violating like a specific written clear command in the Old Testament. It was violating the oral traditions about those commands. So Paul actually never refers to pharisaical traditions as the law. There's one passage in John where that happens, um, in John 5, where the term law is used and it seems to refer to pharisaical traditions. Actually, it's, it's not the term law, it's the term Sabbath, broke the Sabbath. Um, that's the closest, I think, that I'm aware of that we get to that. But we don't have the phrase the law being used to refer to their traditions. Paul seems to be very careful in Scripture to distinguish between the Pharisees' traditions and the law and command of God. Jesus seems to be pretty careful about the same thing, too. And he he's like, hey, you've, you've discarded the command of God for the sake of your traditions. So there seems to be like some, some care about this, especially when talking about the Pharisaical traditions, not just man's traditions, but specifically the Pharisees. I don't think that that's the case where Paul would let that slide. Uh, others would say it was local custom. And again, there's no example of this either. Uh, there's no example of of Paul or anywhere in the New Testament, to my knowledge, the term law being used to refer to local custom. So these first three examples would be taking an unused, unknown meaning of the term to the New Testament and applying it in this one passage because it just helps you with your refutation view. You get what I'm saying? Like, that's just, ah, it's too easy. You know what I mean? It's too easy. It's that sound of one hand clapping again. So um, it doesn't mean it's impossible. It just lacks evidence. Um, some people claim we need to look at those options because there's no verse in the Mosaic law, though. That's how they get you to say, well, it's got to be Roman law, Jewish law, or local custom because nowhere in the, old, in, the, in the Mosaic law does it say that women have to keep silent in some sense. And that feels like a more powerful argument. Like, hey, what we're doing is we're ruling out the obvious meaning, and now we're reaching for maybe a not obvious one. But what if, here's the theory, what if Paul just means the, word, means the term law to refer to the Old Testament in general? Not specifically the law of Moses, but he, what if he uses the term law to refer to scripture, as in Genesis through Malachi? Or I think the Jewish order would have been first, uh, Second Chronicles, or just Chronicles, one book for them. Um, same books, different order. At any rate, what if that's how he uses it? I think he does, and I think I can give you examples. And this is something I'd seen overlooked by, uh, surprisingly, by people who you're, you're like, these guys are smart. Why aren't they considering this? Um, so... Maybe I'm missing something, or maybe maybe they are. I'll let you decide. First Corinthians 14.21. Paul, same book, same chapter, just a few verses earlier. He says, 
in the law, it is written. And then he has a quote by people of, a, of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Do you guys know where that quote is? That quote is Isaiah. Isaiah 28 verses 11 through 12. This is literally in the same context as the passage in question, just, just a little bit earlier. Here's verse 21. Scroll down a bit, and we've got verses 34 and 35, where he's like, hey, as the law also says. So Paul, in the same chapter, clearly uses the term law to just refer to Scripture in general. Why? Because language is fluid like that, okay? So law doesn't always mean the laws of Moses or being under the, the, the covenant of the law. It can just refer to Scripture in general, at least according to Paul. But it's not just Paul. Okay, so um, I want to show you how thorough this is. John 15.25, I'm um, sorry, John 12.34, we'll get to 15 in a second. So this passage is where the Jews do it too, appear to do it too. The Jews in general just appealing to the term law as a reference to not just the law of Moses or even the first five books of the Bible, but of scripture in general. It says, so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that this that the Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is this Son of Man? This is probably a Psalm, Isaiah, or Daniel. Basically, these are the only the only options on the table are like Psalm 89, verses, verse 4, verse 29, verse 36 through 37, or 2 Samuel, which is, is an echo of that same Psalm, or Psalm 110, verse 1, Isaiah 9, 7, Daniel 7, 14. I'm gonna skip the debate and just say these are the only options on the table for where they could be getting this. And none of them are in the Law of Moses, the Pentateuch, so they're using the term law to refer to scripture in general. I, I'm telling you this because plenty of scholars, I think, just um, assume that the word, the phrase the law couldn't refer to all of scripture when in, in scripture it clearly does. So here's Jesus doing it. And this is in John uh, 15, 25. Jesus says, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. That's a quote from Psalm 35, 19. And it's also in Psalm 69.4. So Jesus uses the term law to refer to scripture in general. Because the term is fluid, it doesn't always mean that more narrow sense that we often use it as. And even scripture often uses it that way. So I think that answers that question. Paul's probably just referring to the Old Testament in general. So why doesn't Paul quote a specific verse? I already talked about this, so I'll just remind us. He already did in 1 Corinthians 11. Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Adam's made first, Eve is made from Adam, Eve is made for Adam, and this is his case for the role differences between men and women, at least part of his case. Maybe he would have shared more if he decided to. So it's not part of that like law of Moses, like in the sort of, um, yeah, it's in Genesis, but it's not part of the instructional, like Leviticus, Exodus, like the laws that they were given passed down. It's rather probably just using the term law as reference to the Old Testament in general. Um, remember this for later on, because some other views are also going to fail on their interpretation of Paul's use of the phrase, the law. So remember this little this little wonderful moment we shared together as we move forward. Okay, we've only examined the positive case for the refutation view. And I think that just in examining the positive case, you'll probably like me or thinking like, dude, this view has doesn't really have anything going for it. Nothing strong, nothing significant, nothing to write home about. Now we're going to look, though, at arguments against, or at least one argument, against the refutation view. And I think this is pretty significant for those who've spent a lot of time looking at Paul's, the way Paul does this quotation refutation thing. The times that we know of, right, where, where we would generally agree, I would agree, you'd probably agree too, where Paul is refuting something he quotes. 
It does happen several times. He does it in a very different way than what we have in 1 Corinthians 14. So this, this is just to say, let's compare, let's just itemize the differences between when Paul does refute people every known time and this time where it looks like he's not doing that. So these are specifically facts about how Paul habitually does this refutation quotation thing. And the first point is, one word is not a normal response from Paul. What? <laughs> what? He doesn't just quote a bunch of ideas, several different ideas in 1 Corinthians 14, and then offer one word to refute it all. And then rebu he rebukes them for acting like they're standing on their own, but he doesn't refute the specific statements. What about the law says? Why doesn't he explain what the law really says or say that they're not under the law if that's his point? I mean, he doesn't do that. When he does quote them in other passages in 1 Corinthians even, he responds to the substance of the quotes. So he'll offer a quote and then he'll respond to the, the stuff that he was that was just said. The refutation view would have us believe that Paul did two things here in this, in this 1 Corinthians passage. One, he spent more time quoting them than responding to the ideas he's refuting. Never, never has he done that before. Two, he didn't respond to most of the things they said. He didn't respond to women being silent. He didn't respond to women being in submission. He didn't respond to the reference to the law. He didn't respond to the statement about shame. He just said, what? Which in the Greek doesn't mean what some are pushing it to mean anyways. All right, here's the second way in which this is very different than Paul's usual style of doing quotation refutation, consistent every time that I'm aware of. And that is when Paul responds to Corinthian slogans, he never disagrees with them fully. Like, I don't know of any example where Paul's just like, eh, you're wrong. I don't think of any moment where he does that. Instead, what he does is he qualifies them with wisdom. So he's always in substantial agreement with what they're saying, with the basic idea behind what they're saying, but he qualifies it and applies it with wisdom. Let me give you an example of this. 1 Corinthians, notice his style, 6.12. 1 Corinthians 6.12. All right, here it is. Um, all things are lawful for me. That's the quote. Paul doesn't disagree with it. Yeah, all things are lawful, but but not all things are helpful. Yeah, just because it's lawful doesn't mean it's the only question you ask. Here's the quote. Next one. All things are lawful for me. Again, Paul doesn't disagree with that, but he qualifies it. But I will not be dominated by anything. I don't want to be brought into addictive behaviors, behaviors that are controlling me, that, that, are, that are unhealthy in that sense. Um, here's another quote. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Right? Well, which is true. Like, hey, glorify God. He gave you food to eat. Yeah. But he goes, yeah, but God will destroy both one and the other. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You see how he's not disagreeing with them. He's qualifying them with wisdom. Yeah, food's meant for the stomach. Yes, but you're accountable to God, even in all the stuff that you do. You, you can't just uh, be, a, be a, a hedonist in that sense and, and act like there's no accountability. And so Paul does this consistently. Let's look at another example. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 23, notice it's a pithy quote, and he responds to the content of the quote. None of that's true in the 1 Corinthians 14 passage. All things are lawful, they say. And Paul says, yeah, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful. He says, but not all things build up. It's again, it's the same sort of style. Pithy quote, not disagreement, but adjustment. You got to be tweaked. You're not wrong. You're just not right. You know, <laughs> and that's that's kind of his approach. It seems in these passages. Um, so this is this is Paul's style. Let's look at one more. First Corinthians seven one. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and here's his quote of them: It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Right. This is something that they believed that they thought was a, a good, healthy thing, and Paul doesn't disagree entirely 
but he tweaks it. He goes, but because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And, and then don't deprive each other, you know, in, in marriage as far as your sexual commitments. And so it's not actually a total disagreement. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 7 to say, hey, it's glorious to be single and serve the Lord, but, but don't get married and pretend you're single and hold back from each other. That's not good. And, and, and don't act like you don't have these natural desires for a spouse. Maybe you should just get married. You know, that's like, you know, because of temptation, you know, you should have your own wife and your own husband. Generally speaking, most people should get married. So Paul doesn't disagree with it. He agrees, but he tweaks it. Do we see that happening in 1 Corinthians 14? The answer is no. It's just what? And he apparently disagrees with everything he read, everything he read or quoted from them, um, without actually explaining any of the disagreement or any of the quotes, what they meant or what was wrong with them specifically. Kind of strange. Kind of strange. So the refutation view has it that Paul fully disagrees with them, a unique thing, and he doesn't explain why, a unique thing, or how they're wrong, a unique thing, or what the right view is, also a unique thing. That's a pushback against the refutation view. Uh, my final pushback is this view has Paul refuting the idea that women should submit to husbands, that women should be in submission. It, it, it would be Paul would be refuting that idea, just flat out refuting it, apparently. No qualification, no yeah, but, but just blah, it's wrong. And Obviously, if you find all of the scripture to be egalitarian, then you think I'm very wrong on everything I've said in this series, but or most much of it. But what I would say about this is, if you do follow the logic, and I think the simple, clear teaching of scripture on this, um, that's not that's not sensical that Paul is refuting something he clearly teaches in other places in scripture, both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament also teaches it as well. It's not just a post-fall thing. Paul even ties it to Genesis 1 and 2. Um, he teaches it in Ephesians. Um, it, it's taught in First Peter three. It's taught in other places as well. So that would be a strange thing, a, a challenge at least to that view. Uh, here's an extra point. Um, I don't think it really makes sense if you really if you really hold this view that the that the Corinthians are presenting these views and Paul's refuting them. You have to believe the following things about the Corinthians simultaneously, and I don't know how you believe all this at the same time. One, they taught that women were to be utterly silent in church. Two, they had women prophesying and praying publicly without head coverings in a way that bothered Paul, 1 Corinthians 11. How are these two held together? Women are to be silent, yet the Corinthians are allowing their women to prophesy with no head covering. But they're silent, and Paul doesn't like that. But they're pre prophesying in head coverings, and Paul doesn't, without head coverings, and Paul doesn't like that either. Like, that doesn't make any sense. And three, we're supposed to believe the Corinthians had a generally disordered service where anyone and everyone can bring a tongue, a prophecy, or a word. That's the description in 1 Corinthians. And it's a practice Paul doesn't like. So they have women without coverings prophesying. They have general wild, like uh, out of control spiritual practices where anyone can interrupt at any moment. And a bunch of people are trying to talk during service. And yet they also have women being silent and Paul doesn't like that. These don't work together I think that that pushes against the refutation view as well. So my conclusion is the refutation view fails. Um, it seems obviously wrong. It doesn't have anything, to my knowledge, doesn't have anything going for it, not in a real way, because even the arguments for it fall, and it has a lot of things going against it. All right, let's go to the education slash clatter view. This is actually a group of different views, different interpretations, and they all kind of do the same thing. They approach the passage and they think, Paul really wrote it. Um, it's really authentic to scripture. It's not a quote of anybody else. 
We're just trying at this point and from here on out to try to understand these words as though written by Paul. And this view says, even though it says women over and over again, it's not really about women. Um, it, it's about something else. They all they all seek these views, this group of views I'm discussing now, they all seek to move the focus off of women and onto some other issue that just happened to connect to women culturally. So they'll say women were singled out not because of their gender, but because they happened to be more likely to cause some particular disruption to the service in that culture. The fact that they're women was just coincidental. Everyone who holds this view seems to say the same thing. The application of this passage today has nothing to do with gender. Let me explain a, a couple different education slash clatter views. Okay. One of them would be um, women lacked education. And so that lack of education meant that they were just less uh, prepared for the environment that they were going to be in, or perhaps they were asking lots of uninformed questions and interrupting the service with stuff that everybody else already knew, but the women didn't because they didn't have that educational background. And so it was kind of messing up the service, messing up the the flow. You know, when you have the least informed student interrupting the teacher all the time with questions, it, it kind of kills it for everybody. So it's only coincidental, this view, the education view would say, that women tended to lack education. That was just coincidental. The real prohibition isn't about gender. It's about interrupting lectures and services with uninformed questions that disrupt the learning environment. So the application then is just don't disrupt church with uninformed questions. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. Or they'll say it was about social skills. Maybe it wasn't about knowledge of scripture and knowledge that would, you know, you'd be seeking to get in church. It was about social skills. And this view holds that women didn't sit in public lectures very often, not as often as men in their culture in that time. And so women didn't understand proper decorum, like not interrupting teachers. Everybody else kind of knew it, but they didn't understand that environment, that teaching environment. So Paul tells them to ask their husbands at home until they can learn these social skills better, maybe then they'll know the right time to ask questions and the right questions to ask. So it only applies to people who lack certain social skills, not women ultimately. Um, another like species of this view is the ecstatic tongues or the screaming view where women were speaking in tongues wildly or maybe they were screaming, actually just straight up yelling in services. So this view goes like this. Um, <clears throat> women in the cult of Dionysus were prone to screaming and the wild use of tongues or incoherent blabber. Perhaps some of those women who were in that cult got saved and they brought that practice into the Christian church. So the, the lesson is don't disrupt services with pagan ecstatic behavior, but it applies to all people, not just women. It's only coincidental that women who had recently been saved from this cult, that they were the source of it in Corinth. So you see, there's, there's three different perspectives, three different ways of proving this view, but you get the bottom line is, so it's just coincidental that Paul says women can't. If we understood the background culture, we'd realize it's not about women. It's about uneducated people need to be, you know, not messing up the service for everybody or reckless and service disrupting people need to not mess up the service for everybody or people who lack the social skills of how to conduct themselves in a meeting need to not disrupt the service for everybody. Let's talk then about these views. We'll explain them in a little more detail, uh, see the evidence for them and pros and cons and whatnot and such and such. And we're starting with the education one. Okay, this this is um, a big muddled mess, in my opinion. Um, there's plenty of scholars that will suggest that women received like no education and men had all the education. And, and the truth is a little bit, it's not that black and white, uh, it seems. But there were various factors that led to women being less educated, generally speaking. 
This means that Paul, according to those who hold this view, wasn't saying women can't speak, but that uneducated people can't derail the general meeting and disrupt everyone's ability to receive or communicate. Craig Keener makes a case for this well, and he offers a more balanced case than some who overstate how much, uh, how little education women had. Um, they do sometimes overstate these things. You got to be aware of that stuff. Um, so Craig Keener puts it this way. He says, what seems to be the most likely interpretation of 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, Paul was addressing relatively uneducated women who were disrupting the service with irrelevant questions. The immediate remedy for the situation was for them to stop asking such questions. The long-term solution was to educate them. Now, Craig Keener will support this conclusion. He'll support this with facts from Jewish and Greek sources, and I, I won't get into to all of them in detail, but I'm not pushing against them either, okay? So I'm not, I'm not hiding it from me. I'm just saying, sure, let's, let's grant that. Um, you can see chapter two of his book, Paul, Women, and Wives, to see extensive quotes and discussion of all this stuff. Um, and these quotes aren't, aren't particularly about women, though. The, the ones that I'm talking about now, they're about um, ancient people who did not like when you interrupted, inter interrupted public lectures with uninformed questions. So Jewish and Greek sources both were like, don't be interrupting our lectures with your uninformed questions. It was very much frowned upon. Like in the U.S., we often have a thing. It's like, no stupid questions. Like, well, the Jews and Greeks didn't feel that way. <laughs> they, they were like, oh, there are lots of stupid questions and you shouldn't ask them. So you could just, you know, raise your hand, ask a dumb question. Everybody gives you a look. And then, and then, you know, someone writes, uh, Plutarch writes a thing about like how people like you shouldn't ask questions in lectures. So that was something that was going on for real in the first century. At any rate, you can read more about this in chapter two of his book, but Craig Keener says the following quote, throughout the first century Mediterranean world, novices were expected to learn quietly, but advanced students were expected to interrupt all kinds of public lectures with questions. And he's got footnotes from Plutarch, um, Tosefta, uh, Aulus Gellius that you can check out on your own if you so care. I'm not arguing against any of that. Um, he also says, in addition to this, that women would have been educated uh, perhaps in church and synagogue settings. They would have got some education is what he's saying in those environments, church or synagogue settings. But they were generally less likely to spend as much time in official lectures as men. And now we start to get a little, you feel a little bit of the cracks showing through here because they would have been in church gatherings regularly or the Jew, the Jewish women in synagogue gatherings regularly. So they would have been in like weekly public lectures of the kind that Paul's concerned about when he's writing First Corinthians, you know, church gatherings. But he says, but because they weren't in those more official lectures outside of synagogue or church environments, they're less likely to understand proper decorum. So here's the advantage of the education view. Um, it does have one good advantage, and it really explains the phrase in verse 35, let me put that on your screen. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. Right? This is the shamefulness of it. It, it wasn't, according to this view, it's not shameful for women to speak in church. It's shameful for uninformed people to ask questions in church, which coincidentally was being done primarily by women in that environment, in that culture for understandable reasons. So really, Paul's not sensitive to uh, to feminism and, and those who would uh, who would misinterpret his, his words or, or, you know, basically we, have, we live in a trigger environment. I feel like social media has really increased this. We're like ready to get triggered by anybody who says something that's out of line with our, our views. Um, Paul's not worried about that. <laughs> so he says it in a way that it triggers people, but he was really just saying, if you have uninformed questions, ask them outside the meeting, ask your husband who's had the advantage of greater education and more public lectures than you because of our culture, because of their culture first century. 
So he's just saying, yeah, uninformed people ask questions and get a, get your answers in a different environment. Um, Craig Keener also applies this then. This is how he applies the passage. It also has a certain has certain other obvious applications. For instance, seminary students who did not do their homework should not ask silly questions in class. But it certainly does not apply today to women on the basis of their gender. You understand. This is a way of moving the idea away from women and onto education, away from women and onto proper decorum in gatherings. Here are some problems with this view, though. At least I believe there are some significant issues with this view. Women were not so education deprived as some suggest. Craig Keener does not do this. I don't think he oversteps this, but a lot of people do. I've read several who made it sound like, as I'm reading them, that women were like, they got no education and men had all this wonderful education. Um, women were not likely to have what we would consider today as the, the, the modern equivalent of higher education, like getting your degree in philosophy. But Greco-Roman men and women both had basic education and the Jewish women too we're, we're going to be more educated than at least some scholars let on. Again, Craig Keener's not guilty of this, but others are, and you might be reading them, and I just want you to be aware of that. You just have to do the sniff test, right? Are they over oversimplifying and overstating ancient things? Because that happens a lot. So one of the problems with the view is that. Um, the, the Corinthian church was largely a Gentile congregation. We get this from 1 Corinthians 12, 2, where it says um, that you were pagans, you were led astray by mute idols. That's before they were saved. Okay, so they weren't Jews, they were pagans, idol worshipers, mostly, the majority of them before they were saved. So they were going to have that Greco-Roman basic education for men and women. Uh, also, churches, this is key to me. This is super key on understanding this view. And I think in rejecting it, to be honest, women were not, um, or nobody for that matter in the early church, when when we're concerned about their education, we're not concerned about their, their extra church education, their outside the church education. That's not the concern. Churches were not teaching general ed. They were teaching apostolic doctrine, which would be the New Testament, what we have now in the New Testament. And then they were teaching the Old Testament. So they were teaching scripture. That's what they were teaching. When a pagan couple got saved, it's not like the man walking in the door to, of the church for the first time would have had any educational like advantage when he first started hearing the gospel, the story of Jesus, the doctrines of Christianity, and the teachings about how Christians should live their lives. His philosophy, his greater philosophy education than his wife would have no impact on this whatsoever, as far as I can tell. Because when it comes to the church, and this will come up several times today, when it comes to the church, what mattered was knowledge of Christ, knowledge of scripture, knowledge of doctrine, which nobody was teaching, right? It's in the Greco-Roman context, right? The Jewish synagogue is could be, you could argue differently, but since Corinth was mostly Greek or Greco-Roman, nobody was learning these things outside the church. So they all came completely uneducated into church. So if a man and woman got saved, they walk into church, they're both uneducated. There's no reason to highlight the woman there. And if years of Christian teaching goes by, then they're not uneducated anymore. And Corinth had given them years of teaching. We'll talk about that in a second. But um, So a pagan couple gets saved. The man doesn't have any greater knowledge of Christian doctrine than the woman. So that doesn't the education view doesn't make sense, culturally speaking. After they joined the church, the woman got the same education as the man. Remember Mary and Martha? In the gospel, I think it was of Luke, um, Jesus approves of her sitting at his feet. That is to get education to be a disciple. Remember Priscilla, who helped teach better doctrine to Apollos and is later in, uh, was in Corinth, excuse me. Women in the early churches got the same education as men. That's the bottom line here. So 
Here's the point. If the education view requires women being less educated for it to work, but the only education that matters in the Christian church is Christian education and women got the same education as men, then the education view doesn't work. Churches weren't teaching general ed. They were teaching Christian doctrine. Also, how educated were the Corinthians at this point? They're not a new church, not, not a brand new church anyways. Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth discipling men and women. A year and a half he spent with them, day in and day out, laboring amongst them. And he didn't, it wasn't just an occasional speaker every couple months, right? Like all the time, Paul's teaching them all the time, Christian doctrine to men and women. Remember again, Priscilla, right? Paul met her where? In Corinth. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19. This is why it says here, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, or Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Why? Because this couple came from Corinth and they knew them well. And Priscilla and Aquila are the ones that were able to educate Apollos better on the doctrines of Christianity so that he could preach Christ better and, and um, build his case for the truth of Christianity. So what we're getting out of this is this education view doesn't seem to work. Like imagine having an interpretation of this passage in 1 Corinthians 14 that simultaneously says women years after even sitting under directly under Paul's teaching and then others after that, years later, they're still so uneducated in this, this late in the Corinthian church that they need to be silenced as a whole. While also saying Priscilla, because egalitarians do this, a Christian woman from Corinth was really skilled in theology and able to teach Apollos, and they would even suggest that she was like a, 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 a someone who was like a seminary, uh, not even just seminary, but rather like a, a, tr a pastor trainer, someone who's training pastoral ministry people. So like, how do you get this? How does Priscilla come from the same environment where Paul's like, yeah, your women are still so uneducated, I have to like blanket all of them are unable to be part of um, the public discussion until they're better educated. So against this... Um, you could say, well, Mike, you know, Priscilla's not a great example because Paul like lived with them when he was in Corinth. So she might have been privy to extra teachings and conversations. But my point isn't that every woman in Corinth was as educated as Priscilla. My woman, my, my woman, my point is to say simply that women in Corinth clearly received education that would seem to the kind of education that would seem to rule out the education view. They weren't that lacking. So then we get to the hinge points. All right, let, let's talk about hinge number one. Ba -ba -ba -bum, graphics. Why only women? If this education view is going to stand, you got to ask, why on earth are only women singled out? Were there no uneducated men? Realistically, every guy, every especially Greco-Roman guy who walked into the church would have been completely uneducated. And even people who would recently come to believe in Jesus but didn't know the theology of Christ would have been considered that as well. So why are women singled out? It's only women. Why doesn't he extend this prohibition further on just anyone who's uneducated? Some men had to have been uninformed in that church. Even the ancient quotes from Plutarch, that, and this is key, that Keener uses, Craig Keener uses Plutarch as this case for, oh, we don't like uninformed questions in public. Plutarch's mostly complaining about men in that passage. That's his focus in that very passage. It's not like ancients thought women were the source of all these things. That doesn't seem to be the case. So if Paul's concern was uninformed people interrupting with questions, why didn't he say that? There's plenty of Greek words for someone who's uninformed or an amateur in something. And Paul actually uses those same Greek words in 1 Corinthians. Agnaoe, or ag, ag, 
agnaeo, agnaeo, which is kind of like our word agnostic, but it means to be uninformed about or to not know something, to be ignorant. He uses that in 1 Corinthians 10.1, in 1 Corinthians 12.1. Then there's a word you might think you know, uh, idiotes. Um, it's the Greek word. It's not the English word. Don't read into it. But it means a lay person, an amateur, one not in the know or an outsider. And he uses that in 1 Corinthians 14 in the same chapter in other places. Talking about the uninformed person showing up when you're speaking tongues and they think you're crazy. Um, so here's a response to this from uh, Dale Carson, who, again, I think has done a lot of great work on this. Uh, he says, nor is it plausible that the women are silenced because they were uneducated. For again, we must ask, why doesn't why Paul doesn't silence uneducated people, not just women? And since Paul's rule operates in all of the churches, that's if you read read it, the whole section, it's operating in all the churches. It would be necessary to hold that all first century Christian women were uneducated, which is palpable nonsense. Because again, this view, let's take us back to the scripture so you understand that last point. This view in 1 Corinthians 14 is going to hold that these words are from Paul. Paul's teaching them and we should accept them. And then Paul goes on, and not only in verse 33, as in all the churches of the saints, this implies that this is the case everywhere, but he then goes on, right? Or was it from you the word of God came? Are you the only ones it reached? This implies that they would be the only ones not doing this. So this rule must be consistent for everybody. And it's specifically about what, like it just doesn't really make sense. This leads us to hinge point number two, which is why all women? If it's an education view, hinge one was why is it only women that are focused on not men, since some of them would be uneducated. Hinge point number two is why is it all women and not just some women? And it's all women in every church. Verse 34b says, as in all the churches of the saints. Verse 34 says women should be silent in the churches, plural. Verse 35 says it's shameful for women to speak in church. And verse 36, which I just put on your screen a moment ago, argues um, that this is how it is in all churches. Once you rope in every church, all the churches, it starts to get really hard to believe this, this education view because it would simultaneously teach there were women elders, and this is Craig Keener's view, for, from how I understand it anyway. There's women elders and teachers in many early churches. Yet, in every church, women are so poorly educated, 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, that's when this is written, 1 Corinthians. 20 years after Jesus' resurrection, women are so poorly educated that in every church, there's a rule that they shouldn't be asking questions. But there's elders? Priscilla? That was a rule for Priscilla, too. Like you see, once you rope in all women everywhere, it starts to be a big problem. This leads us to hinge number three for the education view. Um, why is submission an issue? While the education view, at first, uh, it appears to answer the riddle of asking questions. Remember, I talked about that being a strong point for it. Like, hey, if you have questions, well, that's about education, right? Learning, um, to some extent, or at least it appears to be. It um, it has a flaw and that it doesn't explain how asking questions was some kind of threat to being in submission specifically. For this, we need to go back and look at that verse again. For the reason why the women should keep silent is for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Verse 35 is a solution to the problem of threatening submission somehow. You see that? Um, so if that's the case, then asking questions wasn't just about learning. It was connected to submission somehow. Now I'm going to offer a case for why I think that was and explain it. I think the, I think the judging prophecy view explains it very well. 
It's one of the reasons why I, I would agree with that view. <clears throat> On the education view, the issue would, would seem to be about the general embarrassment of ignorant questions, but that's not a submission issue. Or it would be about distracting the distracting impact of gearing a learning environment to the lowest common denominator. I remember this like I took a guitar class in college forever ago. And they geared the, the, the progress of the guitar class to like the slowest student who never practiced. And of course, I was like, you know, like I was over it. I was like, I'm never doing a guitar class again after this. I'll just practice on my own. Um, yeah, that, that kills the learning environment. But how is that a submission issue? Well, that wouldn't be related to submission in any way, but Paul seems to think it is. Since Paul brings up the principle of submission and the created roles of men and women multiple times in scripture, and it seems to me right here in these verses when he says the law says, that he's referring to the Genesis quote he had in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, we should grant that submission here is, is one of his major concerns. And the edge of education view sets that aside completely because there's nothing in the education view that's about submission. On the education view, anybody who interrupts with unlearned questions is embarrassing and derailing the meeting, but how is this threatening the reality of submission um, in, in the roles between men and women? And it's just not. It doesn't seem like it fits. It seems like we're attaching a view to scripture that doesn't fit in several ways. It would make more sense if we saw questions, if we had our interpretation of, of, the, of the women asking questions, if we saw some connection to the word submission. I think the judging prophecy view is the only view that does that. So that's one reason why I'm going to like it later on. Um, so conclusion on the education part of things, and we'll talk about the clatter explanation later uh, in a second. Um, the education view works really well on its own. It's the kind of thing Paul could care about, and it would fit the culture to some degree. But there's, there's a number of disconnects where it just breaks down. It doesn't work. Um, it's a square peg in a round hole. It doesn't fit the passage. It doesn't survive the reread test. That, that's the test I recommend you do even after any Bible study I teach, right? You reread the passage to see if the interpretation you've absorbed now fits all the elements in the passage, because that's a way of letting the scripture tell you that you've got something wrong. And the reread goes, wait a minute, women were highly educated at this point in Christian theology. Um, women in every church are being silenced. Only women. None of the men are talked about. Um, how does that relate to submission? It's just It just breaks down in a number of ways. Let's talk about the clatter explanation, though, because, again, we're, we're dealing with the education and the clatter view, not just not just one, but both, because they both do the same thing. The clatter explanation you can get from the egalitarian website, um, the Center for Biblical Equality, which is cbeinternational.com, .org, excuse me, .org. CBE International is a um, group that puts out content that's meant to articles and videos and, and books that and promote books that are meant to teach the egalitarian perspective and refute the complementarian views or patriarchal views. So this is something they put forward in their website. I have a link to it in my um, in my notes, which you can have for free down below. So this is the idea that women in the Dionysus cult, also known as the Bacchus cult, so Bacchus, Dionysus, same thing, they were prone to wild moments of frenzied shouting in their gatherings. Let me just read to you an explanation that comes from the CBE's website. Nah, nah, yes, there it is, okay. <clears throat> so this is right off their website. They say, Corinth was a center of worship for the god Bacchus, also known as Dionysus. As part of worship, Cor Corinthians would lose all self-control in ecstatic drunken frenzies. They also spoke nonsense tongues. The church at Corinth was getting drunk at communion and going a little wild with tongues and prophecies. Okay, that's those, that's a true sentence. 
So when Paul says the spirit is subject to the prophets, he's reminding the Corinthians that they can wait their turn to prophesy and speak. The Roman writer Livy claims that most of the Bacchus worshipers were women. Okay, now they're building a bridge from that idea to this passage. Most of the Bacchus worshipers were women. In religious practice, in that area of the world, then and now, women contribute ululations, ritualistic wailing in certain rites. This happens at funerals in the Bible. It also happens in triumphant or ecstatic worship, and certainly in the Bacchus cult. Bacchus worship seems to have been influenced seems to have been influencing the Corinthian church. So it makes sense that women would bring these ululations, which would certainly be disruptive and not edifying. Um, there's a number of things I'd like to say about all that, but <clears throat> but uh, let's just start by saying, okay, that's how they built a bridge. When Paul says women, he means um, the Bacchus cult and its influence in, Corinthian, in, in the Corinthian church. Why does he say women? Because most, this is key, because most of the Bacchus worshipers were women. So Paul just highlights women, and he just says women can't do these things. Uh, there are a number of very significant issues with this issue. Let's deal with some of them. Uh, first one, it wasn't only women. Remember, one of our hinge points here is why only women? That's, there you go. In the Bacchus cult, it wasn't only women. Let me share with you a quote from, again, here's Craig Keener, egalitarian scholar. He responds to this. It is not true that most of these cults were in actual practice limited to or even predominantly composed of women. In the cult of Isis, a special protectress of women, less than half the participants at Roman Athens were women, and considerably smaller percentages obtained elsewhere. Nor would ecstatic raving have characterized only women. This is really important here. In the cult of Dionysus, which was no longer as prominent as it had been in an earlier period, frenzied women called maenads featured prominently, but in the cult of the Asian mother goddess Sibel, the main ecstatics were her castrated male priests called Gali. So it's just it's just a little clumsy to think like female deity, therefore female followers, That that's, it doesn't work that way. Uh, it doesn't work that way. The meaning is simple, right? If Paul was forbidding ecstatic practices, he would have to forbid it for men and women because men and women were both involved. Maybe the majority of these of the Dionysus cult followers were women, majority. But was it like 99.9% such that Paul just had to say women? And why does Paul then, well, we'll get into why he, why he silences all women, if only some women would be doing this. Uh, but let's play another, put up another quote here. Craig Keener put me onto a good path of research when he says that texts on how women acted suggest that too many men acted in similar ways for us to apply this background only to female members of the Corinthian church. This is against the CBE's view. Um, this quote <clears throat> would seem to be challenging that view, whether he's, he's not targeting them, but it's just challenging the view. But here's where I looked into that Livy speech. Remember in the CBE view, I'll put it up on your screen just so you can glance at it. They were like, Livy said that most of these were women. So he's their source. He's the one that builds the bridge between the ecstatic practices to specifically women. So I dug up the Livy quote <clears throat> and I looked at it in detail and you have a link to it in my notes below, but here it is. Okay, so Livy says, and here uh, I'm going to read a little bit of a longer quote so we can get the full context. First then, a great part of, uh, of them are women, talking about this Bacchus group. And they are the source of this mischief. Then there are men very like the women, debauched and debauchers, fanatical, with senses dulled by wakefulness, wine, noise, and shouts at night. Who's he describing? Large numbers of men. 
held by night, uh, or excuse me, of what sort do you think are first, gatherings held by night, second, meetings of men and women in common, so he thought men and women were meeting together, it wasn't just a woman thing, if you knew at what ages males were initiated, you would feel not only pity for them also, but also shame. Do you think citizens that use initiated by this oath should be made soldiers? That arms should be entrusted to men mustered from this foul shrine? What Livy's doing is he's he's saying that women were um, were in many ways sources of some of the issues, but his real problem is that there's tons of men involved, large numbers of men involved, and they're doing all these wacky, weird things. And he actually wants to argue that they shouldn't be allowed to serve in the military because they're the kind of people that we don't want to trust with that kind of power. The Livy quote is the quote that the CBE uses to suggest that Paul can isolate women as being the source of this. Livy does not isolate women in the same quote that they use to support that he does. So it it ends up, Look, this is this is this is a problem. Like, this is why you have to read the you have to read the footnotes and you have to check the sources on things, because you get this sort of thing. And and it, and it's not my fault that this happens over and over again on the egalitarian side. That's the egalitarian's fault, and I'm sorry. Now, not all of them agree with that, right? This is why Craig Keener argues against that view because he sees the same problems with it. He has the education view, which I already dealt with. So the second issue with this um, Bacchus cult view is why are questions forbidden by Paul? If, if women are being forbidden from screaming and yelling, then why is it in verse 35 they're not supposed to ask questions? Like obviously questions aren't tongues. Questions isn't screaming. Questions isn't drunkenness or revelries. None of that stuff. That's nothing like the wild cultic behavior of screaming and babbling. And it doesn't connect to why this is related to submission in the previous verse. There's nothing also in the passage implying these women were doing anything like frenzied shouting just as women stay silent. Like, I mean, just read the passage again after hearing this view and you can see it. You don't need my help. <laughs> so some commentators try to say that when Paul says speak, women are not permitted to speak, that that word implies tongues. Um, uh, that would be the only time we know of where that happens, where Paul, Paul uses the word speak all the time. It's a very common word. He uses it over and over again in these passages. Every time he's using it to refer to tongues, the context seems to make it clear that it's about tongues. Otherwise, it's just it, it just takes on its more generic meaning, speak. It can be speak in a particular context, but the context should determine that. Tongues is not the context of this direct passage. Prophecy is, we'll get there later. And we know they can prophesy. It's actually judging prophecy. But I'm, I'm showing my hand a little early here. So I'll, I'll move forward. Took a bit of a break while recording. Bet some cats. On with the video. After a bit of a break, I'm back and I'm wearing my old man sweater because it's getting a little chilly in here. Let's look at the utter silence view. This is the fourth view we're going to analyze. This is the most strict view. Um, we've we've dealt with three comp or egalitarian views, excuse me, and now we're going to deal with two complementarian views or even patriarchal potentially views. And the utter silence view is um, one that I think there's relatively few people who hold. I mean, I've never encountered personally a church that holds this view. I know they exist. I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm just saying like in my own experience, I haven't I haven't come across one. So I, I, I don't have a lot of personal experience with this view. But the basic idea is that women uh, can only be heard in public church gatherings, like maybe maybe when singing, um, probably, but not part of like the leading of the singing. And sometimes not even that, I think for more real extreme, maybe I would even say fringe, perspectives but this view is basically taking the keep silent 
of 1 Corinthians 14 and saying, we're just taking it pretty literally. You're in the church. Don't speak in any public fashion. So a woman, say, giving an announcement, standing up and giving announcements to the church in a public way to just tell the church, you know, what uh, what's going on that week or that month, that would be a violation of 1 Corinthians 14 on this view. So what are the hinges of the utter silence view? The utter silence view, um, which, hold on, I have stuff. There we go. The utter silence view, the first hinge is going to be, what does keep silent mean in verse 34? Um, <clears throat> on this view, they take keep silent to be a very, very strong and very literalistic, not just literalistic, that's the wrong term for it, because it's literal in every interpretation that we're looking at here, but, but a very strong, very broad, I should say, very broad scope. That's probably the best way to say it. It means keep silent in the sense of any speech that others can hear during service, that others are meant to hear, I should say, maybe during service. Um, for this view, there's not a whole lot going for this view as far as numbers of things, but there's one thing going for this view, which is it's, if you just, a plain reading of the passage, I'll put it back on your screen for you, you could understand it that way, right? If you pull this, especially out of context, like if you didn't read 1 Corinthians 14, the whole chapter, if you didn't read the whole book, if you didn't read all of the New Testament, um, and you just had these, these verses, these two verses pulled up out of context and, and put up on the wall of your church, you might think women are supposed to be silent. End of story. Like even asking questions, right? is not something you're supposed to be doing. But admittedly, um, that's a verse out of context. So I would say on its own, it, it, it can mean that way, but there's lots and lots and lots of verses out of context. What, when we say out of context, what we mean is that you hijack a verse, you pull it from its greater context, and you share it in isolation. That makes it seem like it's saying something it's not saying. If you had been there for the whole statement, for the whole chapter, for the whole book, you wouldn't have drawn that conclusion. I think that's going to be the case with this particular view. Like for instance, imagine if in your church, you just, you walk in and you see on the, on the banner of the church or on the front of the building, or maybe it's, it's on the wall in the sanctuary. And it just has this quote from Jesus. If any man does not hate his father and mother, he cannot follow me. What would your view of Christianity be at that point? Like you'd probably be looking at it thinking, okay, um, this was a rather unexpected teaching. I didn't, I didn't realize that Christians thought you should hate your family. Well, this is exactly what I mean by a verse out of context. You're not supposed to hate your family. You need to read everything Jesus says and realize he's merely saying that your love for him is higher than your love for anyone else. And that is as it should be. He is God incarnate who also saved us and, and, and bought us for himself, his own possession. So he made us and he bought us. He owns us twice. All right, let's talk about the first hinge. What does keep silent mean in verse 34? So the word for keep silent, um, it can be used to speak of limited speech. It's not speaking of, in fact, frequently, it's not speaking of like all language or all speaking in all contexts with such incredible scope. It's often referring to a more limited scope. The word in the Greek is the word segao. You don't need to remember that. Don't worry about it. I just want you to know for those who, who care. Um, but it can mean to refrain from using a particular kind of speech or speech in a certain context like I think it does here in verse 34. That's uh, Anthony Thistleton's view. I just quoted him there that it could refer to a particular kind of speech or speech in a con certain context. We can see this actually in 1 Corinthians 14 in two other places where the word is used. Same word, sagao. So let's look at them. In verse 28, if there is no one to interpret, this is when someone speaks in tongues, let each of them keep silent in church 
and speak to himself and to God. So here we get the idea that um, silence is not saying utter silence in all respects, but rather silence in this context is in tongues. If someone is speaking tongues in the church and there is no interpretation with it, then just keep your mouth shut. Just, just be silent. This is between you and the Lord. It's not meant for the body. And so there's the same word sagao being used of a certain kind of speech. It's not to say that that person could never speak or that they couldn't share other things like maybe a prophecy or maybe they had a, a teaching that they were going to be sharing at some point or, or something else. There was some other public thing they were going to do. No, no, they're just supposed to be silent in relation to tongues in that environment. Another example is in verse 30, where we read the same word being used in the same context in the same chapter. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. This is talking about prophecy, as you see in verse 29. So prophets can speak, but hey, if, if someone else says, hey, I have a word from the Lord, then let the first one sit down. Let them not, you know, refuse to go with the microphone in the church service, uh, so, metaphorically, and then let the other person speak. So when it says here, let the first be silent, it doesn't mean all things they might say in any regard are, are, are off the table. It's just silence in regards to the prophecy that they were currently talking about. Now, let the next person say something. You can just be quiet now. So here's the same word used in the same chapter. The first time in verse 28 is to stop speaking in tongues if there's no interpreter. Um, it's not as though the person couldn't say anything. The second time in verse 30 is to stop prophesying if someone else has a prophecy. And in verse 34, it's to stop women from participating in a particular kind of speech. So the word silent, some would, would be like, just let the Bible speak. Well, yeah, exactly. Let the Bible speak here. It uses the same term to refer to a limited type of silence or silence in a certain context. Um, so here's some options. If you're going to take that view, if you're going to say, Hey, on hinge number one, silent probably does refer to some sort of specific context. There are five views of what kind of silence, and we've already gone through some of them, but the first one could be possibly interrupting church service to ask questions for personal clarity. That was Craig Keener's view. Um, others could be Amy Bird's view, for instance, for instance, is, that it refers to being silent when someone else is speaking, as in just not interrupting. You're just not interrupting the service. Um, I, we haven't gotten into that, but I think that it, it suffers from the same problems as the education view and the clatter view. Uh, the third interpretation would be that it's a it's about tongues or shouting. Um, th this is what some people suppose. Um, I think it was Beth Allison Barr who suggested that this might be related at least partly to tongues. Uh, that's difficult because there's there's nothing related to tongues in the asking of questions. When Paul's like, if you have any questions, let her, let her ask her husband at home. That doesn't make sense if it's a tongues issue, because tongues aren't questions. Um, but it's at least an option that some people put forward. And then teaching. Some would suggest that it's actually about a woman teaching. But again, that doesn't deal with asking questions, so that also seems refuted. So we have the idea that silence in a particular situation could be what this passage is talking about, what this term silent is talking about. But again, I'm going to push forward my view, which is coming number five uh, when we get there, that it's talking about judging prophecy. Um, contextually, just like the tongues passage when he says silent, it was in relation to tongues. Then in verse 30, when it was about prophecy, prophecy is the thing being discussed there. Guess what? In verse 34, prophecy we will find is the entire section all the way through from before till after our debated area today. It's all about prophecy. And so the judging of prophecy seems to be the issue. But we'll we'll talk more about that. Let's talk about hinge numero dos, which is um here we go. Consistency. 
So one of the challenges to this view that women should be silent in church, widely speaking, um, maybe they can't do announcements, couldn't like sing uh, as part of the worship team, even some people would even say that. <clears throat> um, not just like the authoritative role of elder, but any kind of speaking. Uh, one of the challenges is that 1 Corinthians 11 talks about women prophesying, and it specifically says they're required to wear head coverings when they prophesy. So this would seem to prove that women could prophesy publicly with proper order. Let's let's look at that verse, and we have looked at it earlier, but uh, again, people may bounce around a little bit in this teaching, and it doesn't hurt to hear it again. So here, 1 Corinthians 11, if you look all the way, chapter 11, verse 2 through 16, the whole section, which I covered in the last the last video in this Women in Ministry series, link below to the playlist for all those. Verse 5, though, highlights it. It's all about the same thing. It says, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Let's just take that part right there. The idea then is that if she prays with her head covered, that she's bringing honor. And she prophesies with her head covered. She's bringing it. So this is a woman who's prophesying, it seems, in a public gathering. The response that the utter silence proponents would hold for the strictest view of this passage, the response that they would, would give is to say, that wasn't an official church gathering. That was just like some kind of a home gathering. And I've, I've seen this in comments I've seen or a blog post, that kind of thing. I haven't really seen, um, I haven't read a particular scholar who's putting forward this view, maybe maybe a lack of my own breadth of research or something on it. But the, the view seems like it's got a lot of problems with it. And this is a big one. You can't just arbitrarily say that prayer and prophecy, and Paul's giving instructions about head coverings in prayer and prophecy is not in a public gathering. Like as if she's at home with just her and her kids, and she's supposed to wear a head covering when she prays and prophesies in that environment. But then in the public gathering, she's not allowed to do it at all. Um, so in the early church, there wasn't really a difference between a home gathering and a church gathering because the church often gathered in homes. That was just the context of the gathering. It happened in the house. So it's a little bit artificial to throw home gathering out there as an alternative to church gathering. Like that is a church. If it, if you're gathered, if there's more Christians than just your own personal family there, it's a church gathering where, wherever it's at, including and most likely in your house. Let's look at what uh, Tom Schreiner says about this. He says, Paul does not merely impose restrictions on women. He encourages women to pray and prophesy in church if they are properly adorned. Complementarians who relegate such prayer and prophecy by women to private meetings fail to convince because the distinction between public and private meetings of the church is a modern invention. In Paul's day, the church often met in homes for worship and instruction. Moreover, it is evident that in 11.2 through 14.40, that whole giant section of 1 Corinthians, um, these relate to activities when the church is gathered together. Paul commends women's praying and prophesying in church, but he insists on proper adornment because such adornment signals submission to male leadership. I think this is an accurate perspective. The entire section, 11, 12, 13, 14, is about church gatherings, like official church gatherings, to arbitrarily pull chapter 11 out of that. doesn't make any sense, but there's other problems with it too. 1 Corinthians eleven sixteen. hold on. 1 Corinthians eleven sixteen also shows that this is happening in the context of a church gathering, a real church gathering, because it says, if anyone's inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is, this is stuff the churches, the gathered people of, of God are doing. So it, 
that view doesn't really work to say that 1 Corinthians 11 is private and 1 Corinthians 14 is public. And do they really think Paul's teaching women, for those who hold this view, honestly, think about this. Do you really think Paul's teaching women to not pray or prophesy in church gatherings, but to go home, put on a proper head covering, and then do it in private? Because that seems to be the view there. Now, there's other views to try to rescue this sort of really hyper-strict perspective of 1 Corinthians 14. And one of them is that Paul is telling them not to pray or prophesy in public gatherings at all in 1 Corinthians 14. But if that's too much for them to handle, then they should at least wear a head covering. Um, so I, I've literally seen people promote this view. It seems very far-fetched, but they're basically saying, hey, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's like, I don't want you speaking at all in church, including prophecy. But 1 Corinthians 11, if you do at least wear a head covering, this is really artificial to force this onto the text of Scripture. Paul discusses at length in chapter 11, according to this view, he discusses at length how to properly do something he entirely forbids in chapter 14. That doesn't really work. Like this is, this is it feels incredibly artificial because it just is. Uh, let's talk about consistency with the rest of scripture because this idea that women can't speak at all in these in these church gatherings is is problematic when you compare it to the rest of scripture in acts chapter 2 there is a prophecy that peter quotes okay you know you know the story 500 are gathered at once after the death and resurrection of jesus and his ascension then 500 believers are gathered at once normal gatherings for christians included men and women throughout jesus's ministry and throughout the new testament after that as well it doesn't make any sense to think that only males were gathered as these 500. I, I don't see any argument for that. Um, to think that, you know, Mary Magdalene was present, uh, you know, it, here, 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 and then she couldn't be during the, when they're praying in and gathered in the upper room, that, that doesn't really, that doesn't really click. Um, yeah, it doesn't click for a number of reasons, but let's just say women are there. And then in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit descends on all of them, they all speak in tongues, all of them. So women are speaking openly at a church gathering, right? This is a massive, this is considered a large church gathering, 500 plus people all at once. Then Peter interprets what happens in Acts chapter two, and that's where it gets even harder for the view that women are just not supposed to speak or say anything in the context of a church gathering, as opposed to say a softer complementarian view about eldership. Um, so Acts two, <clears throat> verse 15 Here's Peter's inter interpretation of what's going on when men and women seem to be speaking in tongues. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. What was it? What is this thing? In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. To limit that prophecy to private meetings that don't count as church gatherings, when the first time it happens, is in a 500-person gathering and a very public meeting. It just seems wrong. Your young, young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, I will pour, uh, in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on earth below. And he goes on. So male and female and the things that they were saying, because they were tongues with interpretation, it was effectively prophetic because it was known to the people. So it was speaking to individuals it counted as like a type of prophecy. So here's men and women prophesying in Acts chapter two. That also pushes against the idea that we've got um, this rule about women not even being able to prophesy in church, which is what some proponents of that view have to hold. 
Um, there's also other examples in scripture against this. Philip's daughters were known for prophesying. And how do we know that they were publicly known for prophesying? They were widely known. How do we know that they didn't ever do it in an official gathering? Where, where does it say this? Paul seems to think that this is the primary place prophecy happens, that the primary place it happens is in the context of a public gathering, the way he talks about it. It's just assumed. Um, so that seems relevant as well. We have Anna in the book of Luke. She prophesies at the temple. People hear it, mixed group hears it, men and women. Holda prophesies to men, speaks prophecy from God. Deborah speaks prophecy to men from God. Uh, Miriam also does the same, and, and they hear as well. Men are in the audience as well. So... This view, I think, um, you might be like, I feel like I'm wedged into this view because all the other egalitarian views don't really work. You might feel that way. And if you do, I want to say, hey, it just means you have to keep your options open because this view isn't really seem consistent. It doesn't explain why this is why this is happening in the context of 1 Corinthians. You know, it, it's just confused in a number of ways, I think. Okay, before I move on to our final view, I just want to point this out. There are those who will use this utter silence view and uh, use the fact that it doesn't fit other scriptures, like it has real problems, as a way of creating a wedge for these other seemingly unlikely views, education or the, Di the Dionysus cult, Bacchus cult, or something like that. Um, I think that that's something to be aware of, because there's another view that seems to fit the evidence a lot better than all of the views we've mentioned so far. So conclusion on the total silence view would be it doesn't fit the context at all. It creates some pretty serious contradictions with other scriptures. And we're wise to look for better interpretation. Yes, I agree with you there. But I think the better interpretation we might consider is the judging prophecy view. So let's look at our final view for today's video for this very uh, challenging passage, uh, certainly challenging in today's climate on 1 Corinthians 14. Judging prophecy. This is the view that is increasingly common nowadays. Uh, maybe it's the majority. I, I just know it's a very common view nowadays among, say, evangelicals in particular. The basic idea is that everyone, men and women, can participate in sharing prophecy. See, that that rule right there eliminates any contradiction issues that would be caused by the utter silence view that we just discussed. Um, they can all share prophecy. But when it comes time to judge prophecy, to weigh the words of prophecy, to decide what the congregation should receive as from God or not, when it comes time to do that, men are to do it because it involves authority related to doctrine and ruling that God wants men to have in the church. So fundamentally, it just goes to reinforce basic complementarian principles that we we believe, I believe, are being derived right from the text of Scripture, forced upon us, I think, by the very plain, um, very plain meaning of Scripture, in my opinion. So one way to see the difficulty that could come up if a woman was to be involved with the judging of prophecy in the church is to think about the moment when her husband stands up and shares a prophecy and his wife is doing the judging of it for the body of Christ. Well, that that could create a problem if this whole idea of marriage roles is, is sufficiently in place. I'm not saying that's the only reason or the only scenario where it could be a problem. I'm just trying to create an understanding amongst the, the listeners right now that you would go, yeah, okay, I can see how if the complementarian perspective is correct, that would make logical sense. It can disrupt the submission that God sees as beautiful and good. And we should probably see it that way too against our culture, which is highly offended by it. So we'll talk about whether this really works or not, but that's the basic view. If verses 34 and 35 are seen in that context and interpretation seems obvious, I like Anthony Thistleton's explanation for this. He says, describing this interpretation, 
The speaking in question denotes the activity of sifting or weighing the words of prophets, especially by asking probing questions about the prophet's theology or even the prophet's lifestyle in public. So just see the logic of it, at least understand the logic of it there, and then we'll talk about the hinges of this view. The first hinge is, did they really do that? Like, a lot of churches today don't do this. I mean, did they really judge prophecy as a regular practice in the church? I mean, it might seem totally foreign to you. You might be in a church where in years and years you've never heard someone stand up and share a prophecy at church. You've And, and maybe if you did, you never heard them stop and say, well, let's have a time of testing. You know, let's judge, let's discern that. So it might feel very foreign to you. But it wasn't foreign to the New Testament. So whether you believe in cessationism, that the gifts of, of, of these types of gifts have basically ceased, or at least the common use of them has ceased, um, or not, is irrelevant. The point is, it wasn't, it hadn't ceased yet, at least when Paul wrote this, if nothing else. Um, so you want to understand it from their perspective. We want to teleport ourselves to the first century as much as we can when we're studying the scriptures to understand them. So it says here, about the different gifts that people have, to another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. It seems as though these two gifts are paired. They don't necessarily come together. It's not like the same person who prophesies has the ability to distinguish between spirits or the gift of discernment in some sense, um, but rather they, they go together in function. Somebody prophesies, someone else has a distinguishing between spirits, they're able to evaluate that prophesy. Just like later in the verse, Tongues will come to someone, and to somebody else will come the interpretation of tongues. So you see how those are also paired. That's the basic idea in that verse, um, and I've, <clears throat> I, I am convinced that that is what is meant by the distinguishing between spirits that we find here in 1 Corinthians 12.10 because of the parallelism. Also, 1 John 4.1 gives us similar terminology. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Right? And this is related to prophecy, because look at that false prophet. So test the spirits, distinguish the difference between the spirits. Is that from the spirit of God or from some other source, some evil spirit, or perhaps just the person's own spirit? Their, their wishful thinking is being projected out as prophecy. I think that happens a lot nowadays in charismatic churches, unfortunately. And I believe in prophecy, so I'm not discounting it. I'm just saying I think it happens, and that's why we need to discern and distinguish what's going on with prophecy. First John 4, 1 through 3, um, it not only shows us that it was tested, but it actually kind of shows us how it was tested. This, this is interesting. So back to that same verse, it says, but this you know, by this you know, the Spirit of God. This is how to test prophecy. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is specifically like how to really distinguish between the polar opposites of evil versus good, evil versus something coming from God. And it has to do with theology. A lot of people think this is a super easy test. Oh, if the Spirit says, Jesus has come in the flesh, well, it's Jesus the Christ, that is Jesus, the Jesus John preached, the Jesus the apostles preached, got to be the right Jesus, got to be the Christ, which makes him the Messiah, the one who died for our sins, the one who uh, connects to all the Old Testament scriptures. So you've got to bring in all the Old Testament with you too, because that's what Christ does. Christ brings with him all of the work that God has done in giving the scriptures to the Jewish people. And then he also has come in the flesh, meaning he, he came as a human, died, and then of course rose again. All those things are there. In other words, um, distinguishing between spirits involves like, in a sense, a theology test. 
the person and work of Jesus and his full connection to the concept of Christology through the Old Testament, the preaching of the apostles that we now have in the Gospels, Acts, Epistles, Revelation. It's a doctrinal test in many ways that they use to discern whether something is to be received or not. This is super interesting because it, it, it meant that any future prophecy was filtered through previous information they'd already received. This is this is the opposite of um, some of the real uh, heretical groups today, like uh, Mormons, who will say that future revelation is it takes more dominance than old revelation. This is actually a doctrine in Mormonism where they're like, yes, but whatever we're revealed now, that's like more true in a sense than the stuff that came before. And so that they can actually, uh, and, and they kind of have to do this because the church has evolved so much over time. Uh, but that wouldn't be a biblical view. Also, 1 Thessalonians 5 talks about this. Again, I'm just going to, to try to establish here that this was an actual practice in the church. So it's, it, it is, is in the cultural background of the Corinthians experience in churches. Here it says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. What are we testing? Well, they're testing prophecies. It's all part of the same sentence there. Don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. So many of our churches today, we don't offer place for prophecy. Um, so it would seem foreign, perhaps, to the people in those churches. But it was not foreign to the early church. This was a regular feature of the early church, at least. So here's a side note, interesting. A New Testament prophetic word was not received as scripture or apostolic teaching. It was tested against scripture and apostolic teaching as all things should be. I just for those who need to know that, I thought it was important. So yes, uh, to, to answer for hinge number one, did they really do that? Uh, the answer is like, yes, the judging and testing of prophecy was a regular thing in the early church. And it's understandable for Paul to talk about it when he's trying to bring order to Corinth in the way they operate in spiritual gifts. Okay, so so far that's actually pretty good. Hinge number two, consistency with first with First Corinthians fourteen. So First Corinthians, I won't read, I won't read the whole thing to you right now. But First Corinthians, if you look at the whole chapter, what you'll find is verses six through twenty eight are all about the use of tongues in the church gathering. He talks for a, a lot extensively about tongues. Anybody who practices tongues, I would say you should spend a lot of time looking at First Corinthians fourteen on how it should be done. But verses 6 through 28, it teaches that tongues without interpretation doesn't benefit other people. It can even cause people to think you're crazy. Therefore, don't do it, publicly speaking. Two or three at most should be speaking in tongues and only with interpretation so that there's order in the gathering. Um, and there's 23, ultimately, 23 verses on the use of tongues. And know that there's two sides to the use of tongues in this section, 1 Corinthians 14, right here that I'm moving so fast you couldn't read it anyway. But there's two sections here. One, speaking in tongues, and two, interpreting tongues. Paul deals with those two things. So the delivery of the tongue and then what to do with it once it's been delivered. It's obvious then the next section, the fact the rest of the chapter, I'll argue, is all about prophecy. So we have tongues for a bunch of verses and we have prophecy. But in, in uh, verse 29, the shift comes and prophecy is being spoken about. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. That's the beginning of it. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged, and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. This is 29 through 33. Prophecy is the context, right? We're asking if this, if, if the judging prophecy view is consistent. Well, prophecy is in the context. Just like there were two sides to the tongue issue, 
there are two sides to the prophecy issue. Notice how it's introduced in verse 29. Oh, I already had it highlighted. There it is. Let two or three prophets speak. That's the delivery of the of the of the message. And then let others weigh what is said. Now you're dealing with what to do with it after it's been delivered. So sharing the prophecy and then testing the prophecy, these are the two things. Paul was serious about making sure that tongues involved the companion gift of interpreting tongues. And he's also serious to make sure that prophecy involves the companion gift of judging or weighing prophecy, which is why he continues the passage by providing order for how it should take place. I'm suggesting this gives us our context that gives clarity to what is women shouldn't speak. What is this referring to? It's the context of judging prophecy. Um, here's a side note that may not have a whole lot to do with today, but in case it's relevant to you. This phrase, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, I think is merely speaking about the ability for a prophet to hold their tongue, okay, and not act like, oh, I can't, I have to speak. And then they, they're they sort of, uh, people who focus on spiritual gifts sometimes value spontaneity over, over much of almost anything. And so that can be a problem. He's like, hey, you can control yourself. He said the same thing to the tongues people. He's saying to the prophets people, prophet, prophetic people, um, one by one, right? Right, because the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You can control your own actions. I think that's just what that means. Um, now, some treat verse 34 through 36 as if it's somewhat divorced from this context, like the utter silence view pulls it right out, or the education view pulls it right out, like it's divorced from the context of prophecy. Only one view I know really grants the prophetic context, and it's not just in the verses prior. It's about prophecy all the way through. Imagine for a second, hypothetically, 34 and 35 is related to prophecy. Then verse 36, let's read on and see that prophecy is still in mind. Uh, or was it from you that the word of God came or are you the only ones that has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I'm write, writing to your commandment of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues but all things should be done decently and in order. This is a perfect summary of the whole chapter. He wants them to speak in tongues, but he gives them the decent order in, in which they need to do that. He wants them to prophesy, but he gives them the decent order in which that must happen, which includes uh, women not speaking during that time. So here's what we mean by speaking. The, the women should keep silent in the churches when, when there is the judgment of prophecy. For they're not permitted to speak, what do we mean? in the judgment of prophecy. Why? Because they should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, we'll talk about how we how I fit this into this interpretation. Uh, let them ask their husbands at home for it's shameful for women to speak in church. When? In the context of the judging of prophecy. I think that that makes the most sense of the passage. Let me share with you, before I do pushbacks against my view, um, here's the summary uh, from uh, uh, Carson, Dale Carson, on this topic. He says in verse 29, Paul turns to prophecy. And writes, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. The two parts of this verse are then separated, separately expanded upon. The first part, two or three prophets should speak, is treated in verses 30 through 33a, where constraints are imposed on the uttering of prophecies. The second part, and the others should weigh carefully what is said, is treated in verses 33b through 36, where constraints are imposed on the evaluation of prophecies. I mean... Pull out your Bible, read it with that in context, realize that verse 29 is giving you kind of a map of this, and it repeats the same concept of this sort of division of do it, but do it with this control, 
Um, that comes at the end of the chapter as well, supporting that view, I think. So there's a side issue I need to discuss, um, and it's the question of who's really supposed to judge prophecies? Because one of the pushbacks is um, elders don't judge prophecies, Mike. The, the leaders of the church aren't the ones who are judging the prophecy. It's the prophets who judge, or others, they would even say. So we need to talk about that, because that, that's what comes up when you present this view. Um, Craig Keener suggests it was prophets, not elders, who judge prophecy, and concludes that if you prophesy, if you can prophesy, you can judge prophecy. And since women can prophesy, women can judge prophecy. So that logic means that this can't really be the right understanding of this passage. So who tests prophecy? Prophets, elders, or is it everyone? Some scholars would say it's just everybody. It's it's not an eldership thing. It's every everybody in the church, which means women can do it too, on their view. Okay, I'm going to push back on, on that as well. But here's why it matters. The interpretation of this passage that I'm presenting, right, the one that says judging prophecy is in view, it requires that judging prophecy is an exercise of authority similar to that of an elder. Whether an elder does it or not, it's just something like an eldership type thing. And that's why women are excluded because God's drawing lines about gender roles. Um, so some say that it's prophets. Let's talk about their case. They say the word others, let's back up to verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. They'll say that phrase, the others, that proves that it's talking about other prophets. That's how we should take it. We should take it to be other prophets. Um, I think we should all acknowledge this, is that this is fairly vague. Um, it seems to me that the others is not the most clear thing in the world. And so we're hanging a lot on how we interpret that term. So let's walk through maybe some problems with interpreting it as other prophets. Uh, one issue is this. It supposes that only prophets have the potential to use the gift of discernment. Right? Because if only other prophets test or weigh what prophets say, then only prophets have that gift. And this would seem to go against egalitarian. Most egalitarians argue that anybody can have any gift. And that's kind of one of their central arguments. So I don't really see how that's consistent with other ways they argue when they're talking about gifts of teaching, for instance. I also don't see any biblical warrant for this, for thinking that the gift of discernment only goes with the gift of prophecy. Even when Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians, he's like, to one, the gift of prophecy, to another, the gift of discerning between spirits. So these are not, it seems, something that just automatically goes with the same person. For instance, do we think only those who speak in tongues can interpret tongues? If someone goes, I have an interpretation, we'd be like, yes, but do you also speak in tongues? Well, no, it would just seem artificial to throw that out there. So this doesn't prove it's wrong. I'm not proving that this is wrong, but it points out that it, it lacks evidence. There's, an, there's nothing teaching that in scripture, and it seems unexpected from other things we're reading in scripture about gifts. Yeah, and inconsistent with the way most egalitarians argue that anybody can have any gift. Uh, second problem with the view that it's other prophets that are judging prophecy is it required the Corinthian Christians to categorize everyone in the church as prophet or not prophet. Right? Because practically, pragmatically, when you're going to say you have to be a prophet to judge prophecies, you must you must have a list of the prophets. Like in the church, you'd have to have, are you a prophet? Are you a prophet? And that is a problem for a few reasons. Um, Paul clearly thinks anybody could prophesy. He doesn't just categorize people as prophet and not prophet. He thinks anybody can do it. 1 Corinthians 14, let's look at verse 20, uh, 39. We already read this, but let's look at it again. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. He thinks anybody can do it. 
He's like, hey, just earnestly desire this. You know, maybe God will give it to you. One person gets it, one doesn't. Maybe it's just anybody anytime could have done this theoretically. So that's not consistent with the idea of having forming these lists. In 1 Corinthians 14, 1, when you zoom back up to the beginning, pursue love and, des and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So this is something that all the church is supposed to desire. It doesn't seem like there's any requirement to be a prophet. It's just that anybody can have a moment where God gives them a word and they share it with others for their edification. That seems like a better view. And it would be extremely difficult if if anybody can prophesy at any time, it's odd to require a list of official prophets who are allowed to judge prophecy. In fact, saying that you have to be a prophet to judge prophecy is saying nothing if anybody can prophesy at any time. It doesn't mean anything. So I, I'm just saying it, it just feels like this doesn't feel fit. It doesn't feel fit. We're not really limiting it properly. Um, others say it's everybody. Everybody tests prophecy. It's everybody. When it says others, it's everyone. So everyone other than the person who shared the prophecy, that's why it says others, they work together to judge the prophecy. So I don't know how this would pra practically look. Um, does that mean the congregation takes a vote after discussing openly what they think about this person's prophecy? Do they actually, were they voting like in the middle of a church service? Um, I don't, I, I would be surprised to see that as a reality, but I don't know how you could avoid it if everyone is doing it. Um, one of the elders' jobs also, and here's a more of a stronger pushback. One of the elders' jobs was to preserve proper doctrine and confront mistakes or false claims about Christ or about theology or about God, including a prophecy that's not accurate. So how are elders to lead in preserving doctrine when they aren't in lead in the lead in the testing of prophecy? But they, they have a natural job that overlaps into that moment where the church is publicly hearing a prophecy and it has to be tested. It has to be tested, among other things, with doctrine. So this, this view that everyone tests it and it doesn't somehow fall back to the elders to make a decision, that doesn't seem to fit the function of an elder. God didn't establish mob rule in the church or, or congregational rule in the church, not that I'm aware of anyways. Um, he gave us elders. And if you want to have in your church some way in which the congregation can overrule an elder, like a check and balances kind of thing, we would still have to affirm that the elders are doing the actual leading and ruling, so to speak, um, and decision-making when it comes to things like this in the New Testament. So the third view is it's elders. It's elders that are the ones judging the prophecy. Um, elders slash overseers overseers slash bishops. These are terms in the New Testament that overlap each other. They're not separate um, types of things. Um, they're the only universal, biblical, ongoing office in the church which wields general authority over the congregation. But the apostles didn't establish other apostles to be doing this. Um, the, they appointed elders in every church. Let's look at some scripture that talk about this. Acts chapter 14, verse 23. And I think this is relevant because when we see, the again, the function of the elder, we'll see how it fits this moment. If therefore the whole church comes, uh, that's not right. I wanted Acts 14.23. There we go. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is part of the missionary journey, right? It was done in multiple cities in the book of Acts. Um this this is hey we we plant a church and then before we can hand you over like to just say sayonara we're out of here we we appoint elders and they're there to preserve doctrine this is an example uh, also in Titus 1:5 
one, five. There it is. Paul says to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Then he gives qualifications for elders so that we would appoint the right people. And of course, one of the things they have to have is good, solid doctrine and the ability to confront people who get it wrong. This is part of the job of the elder. The church planting job, the missionary job, wasn't fully done until elders were appointed in every, in every location because they would safeguard doctrine and guide people. And so they're doing that, it seems, they'd have to be doing that in some function during the judging of prophecy. Hebrews mentions this as well, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give account. Let them do this without, with joy and not with groaning. A whole Bible study you can do on that. Um, but the, uh, the idea here is, yeah, you, you, you know, elders would seem to have to be involved in the judging of prophecy because it infringes upon them watching over their souls and being accountable for the stuff that the people are receiving or rejecting. It's also their job, let's look at 2 Timothy, the elder's job to, there it is, to um, hold fast to proper doctrine and to know proper doctrine. And of course, part of the prophecy test is a doctrinal test. So you then, my child, Paul says to Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me and in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. These whom he is going to be teaching, Paul elaborates and explains, you know, basically they're elders. The elders who have the gift of, uh, the requirement, I should say, the responsibility to teach the congregation that Paul discusses later on in, in uh, earlier on, I should say, in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 3.2 says that elders have to be able to teach, not, not just a general teaching skill, like, like you can't teach math unless you have the ability to teach math or the ability to teach in general and a very good and accurate knowledge of math. So you can't teach Christian doctrine unless you have both a general ability to teach and a good and accurate knowledge of Christian doctrine, right? So it's, there's a doctrinal need that's there. Paul describes this part of the elder role in Titus 1.9. And hopefully as I'm sharing all this, you see at least the force of why, why this is impressive to me, um, showing that the elder must have had a prominent role in the judging of prophecy because it, it's just part of his role to do that sort of thing. Titus 1.9, he must hold firm, the elders, right, to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also, catch this, to rebuke those who contradict it. Whose job is it to rebuke those who maybe stand up and say, the Lord gave me a word and they share something that's wrong? Who's, whose job is it to correct them? In the congregational gathering, that would have to be the elder. There's more. Paul's farewell words to the Ephesian elders uh, they give us some insight into this as well. Acts chapter 20, 28. This is when Paul calls the elders in Ephesus to meet him in Miletus. He's on his way to Jerusalem and he knows he's not going to see them again. So he's like, meet me here. He's going to Passover. They're not because the early church did not generally just go to observe Passover. Some of the Jews did in the church, but not the whole church. Um, and I mean, observe, ob observe the Jewish celebration of Passover. <clears throat> and um, And listen to what he says to them. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, be alert 
remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. So this is something, um, the elder's job is to deal with the things the congregation's hearing and to make sure that it holds fast to sound doctrine. And right, this I think is clear over and over again, we're seeing this in scripture, very strong principle. It's the elder's job to judge what the people are saying, what anybody is saying to the congregation and to test it against proper teaching that they've been trained in. Would that not include prophecies? How could it suddenly not be their job? It's hard to imagine what it would look like in a, in a real like scenario you're in, in the early church. For prophecies to be judged only by other prophets when, this is, when you have this in mind. The elder's job is to preserve doctrine and for the congregation as a whole to submit to that role. That, that would require that they were involved in the judging of prophecy, it seems. When someone carries out the prophecy, though, on this on the view that only prophets judged other prophecies, right? On that view, when someone comes out with a prophecy, we're to expect the elders to fall silent if they're not officially prophets, unless they happen to be prophets too, and let other people rule on what the congregation will receive as from the Lord, that would actually, it seems to me, be an abandonment of their God-given role that Paul gives, I mean, is very serious, passionate about them observing. So then what are we saying? We're saying, okay, so women were not spe specifically not supposed to have the office of prophet. That was something women were not supposed to be given in the New Testament church. And so it makes sense that in the judging of prophecy, there's a limitation given to avoid them from infringing upon that role as well. Okay, finally, it might not be necessary to decide who was judging the prophecy in a really exclusionary sense. Like it was elders, not the people. It was prophets, not the elders. It may not be that required to be that black and white about it all because it's possible that the others of that verse what the others judge is just saying anyone other than the prophet that it's not trying to specify exactly who does the judging it's just specifically saying not the guy who brought the prophecy which is really interesting when you think about it it would mean that um the person who's coming up with a prophecy saying god spoke to me that they can't be in the leadership position of the church in that context they present it to the church and other, someone other than him has to judge it. And so any church that has a prophetic leader who's like the prophet who's also the leader and no one is standing to test and discern and hold him accountable and judge or her the things that they're saying, that would seem to be what Paul was trying to avoid was that very thing. And that's what's happened with like the rise of Mormonism or Islam is that you have exactly that that going on. So that, that could be uh, something that Paul's trying to do is limit under the inspiration of the Spirit, it's not just Paul, right? It's God's trying to limit the authority and power of someone who's claiming to prophesy. But then Paul goes on to say, who else doesn't judge the prophecy, not just not the prophet, but also women, to limit their authority and power in the church? That would be this interpretation, which I do think is accurate. So you might not need to pick a side. Um, you could even say, for instance, let me make this even easier for you to swallow. <laughs> uh, suppose other prophets test, it is prophets, other prophets test it. A prophet prophesies and others are other prophets. Is it possible that Paul is just saying, yeah, other prophets test, but not the women because there's a, like a leadership role that's taking place in that context. I don't consider that likely. I, I'm just saying you could potentially go that road, that route if you're convinced of it. Um, or suppose everyone tests it, like some scholars suggest. I, I say it's the same issue. Maybe everybody in general, everybody can test prophets. And then Paul's like, ah, but except for the women. That could be something that he's saying there as well. It wouldn't rule out this interpretation from the passage. Um, but I still think elders 
ultimately test it. And it's possible lots of people contributed to the discussion and the elders made a ruling. It may have been more organic than all that. Okay, at this point, I want to deal with another possible pushback uh, to my view, and that would be the pushback that Mike is saying that there's a gift of the Spirit that women can't have. Because 1 Corinthians 12.10, which I do, I am persuaded that that's talking about um, this, this activity of judging prophecy when it says the ability to distinguish between spirits. I think it is talking about that. Um, do I think that women can't have that, that only men get that, that other gifts men can have, uh, and women, but on this one, it's only men. Uh, no, I'm actually not saying that. Let's let's have a more nuanced view than that. So I'm only saying that they don't exercise that gift in public in a way that takes authority over the congregation or potentially over their husbands. That would be all that's required is saying, no, it's about the timing and location of the gift, of the usage of the gift, because it, it then reflects on the eldership type role. So they may still need to exercise that gift for themselves. Someone comes to their door, knock, 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 some Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door. And they go, oh, yes, well, this, this was the revelation that was given. Mormon says, oh, Joseph Smith had his revelation from God. And you're like, yeah, no, I have discernment. I have the ability to distinguish between spirits. <laughs> that's that's not from God. You would still be using that gift, you exercising it for yourself, your kids, your family, or in a myriad of other ways that are outside of the government of the church. So every prophecy has to be judged. If it's in the context of the local church gathering, men are to do it, to preserve God's ordained order for the church. That would be the complementarian view, I think, the most the most reasonable one. Just as a woman can be gifted in leadership, for instance, or gifted in teaching, but there are right and wrong contexts for those gifts to be expressed. Like I I'm, I'm have been for many years a leader, right? Uh, I'm not leading much right now other than this ministry. Um, but that doesn't mean that I just get to lead in any old context. I can't just walk and be like, I'm a leader. And I'm going to lead here and there and wherever I want. Like that, obviously there's context that we need to consider. Now our culture responds to this like it's really not fair. Um, and sometimes our our culture, and I mean even even Christians in our culture, because we're very westernized and we need to realize that when we come to the Bible, we've got a lot of work to do to try to come to see it the way God does. And um, we treat eldership sometimes and, and pastor pastoral ministry like it's something we deserve, like it's a bucket list item. Like, I want to be a pastor. I want to be, it's like, oh, it'll fulfill my dreams if I can become, and it becomes a narcissistic thing where it's like, I'm doing this to bring fulfillment to myself instead of just to serve the king. That's a mentality I've seen with many leaders and it causes burnout in the long run or bitterness or just bitterness and angst because you're you're bitter at people for not fulfilling you the way that you thought they would. Um, and you wanted some types of praise and attention and stuff that just, you know, pastoral ministry is not a bucket list item. It's not a role that you give people for their sense of fulfillment in life. It's how God orders the church and it's for his glory and for our good. And we should acknowledge and receive what he wants as far as like how this takes place. So let's go to the last really category for us, which is why asking questions. This is the last hinge point for the judging prophecy view. And it can easily be seen as the weakest part of the view. Verse 35 of our passage here today, it says that, um, I, I want to put it on your screen. Verse 35 tells us, If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their own husbands at home. How does that relate to the judging prophecy view? And this would seem on the surface like the weakest part of this interpretation, and I, I grant that it, it probably is. Um, doesn't mean that it's fail of a, a, a 
a fatal part, but I think it's the weakest. Um, so why would a woman not only be not allowed to judge prophecy for the congregation, right? That seems to fit the context and a lot of what's going on here, but also not be allowed to ask questions in the context of judging prophecy. Why is it she can't ask questions? I think the, a reasonable explanation is to acknowledge like, here's a couple factors to keep in mind. And it would, hopefully the light, will, the light bulb will go on for, for people. Um, at least it does for me. Number one, the judging of public prophecy to tell the congregation what is to be received or rejected steps into the leadership role in the church. That seems warranted from this dis discussion about like what elders do and uh, how that role would affect the judging of prophecy. Um, elders were prominent, at least in the judging of prophecy, because they had to guard the people and the doctrinal truth of Christianity. So that's factor number one. Factor number two, and here's what may connect the dots for you, maybe not is a way to passive-aggressively slide into that role, to passive-aggressively slide into the position of starting to control the judgment of prophecy is to ask questions. Doesn't mean it's being done intentionally, but it's one way to do that. And anyone who's a teacher, you know this, because it's all it takes is for a student to start asking questions, to start, whoever asks the most questions controls the discussion. That's like, that's how interviews work, right? The How does the interviewer get the person to talk about things they don't want to talk about, to say things they don't want to say so they can get like this crazy interview that gets goes viral online. They do it by asking questions. The, the person who controls the questions controls the moment. This is why a lot of famous people before they get interviewed, they want the list of questions and they want on and off topic. They want to control what, what can be asked because they know just asking questions is a very controlling thing in a, in a, in a group gathering. Something just fall. Oh, it was a cat. <laughs> I didn't even see her come up. Um, I've had this happen myself where uh, a student sought to control the meeting by asking constant questions because he was just bored and he was entertaining himself. And so I had to, I had to tell him, you can't talk during the services because he was just causing a problem. Um, this is in fact, people know that this is true because they promote this as one of the explanations for first Corinthians, even though it falls for other reasons, they promote it. Um, I had another student one time when I was first starting doing ministry who was Mormon and I think what he did was he went to like his dad and he got like the questions and then he would come to the service at this little youth group where I was teaching and he would ask questions like, well, it, you know, so if you love Jesus, you're going to be, you're going to be saved, right? And I go, yeah. And he goes, well, Mormons love Jesus, don't they? Don't you think they do? And he kept asking these like baited, loaded questions that were very, obviously very prepared until I, and I tried to deal with them and I felt like it went okay as far as the discussion, trying to be friendly, but also, and I started to realize, wait, he's just using this meeting to control, using questions to control the meeting to guide people towards Mormonism. And so I eventually had to just tell him like, you can't ask questions about this stuff anymore. You're using it to manipulate people. So you get the idea. Asking questions could at least potentially be used to control the meeting and control that moment of judging prophecy, right? So if that view's right, then Paul's cutting off a way that women could, maybe even unintentionally, they could push into the role of elder during the judging of prophecy. So that may not be like, seem like the strongest uh, answer. I think that there's at least some warrant for it. You're like, okay, I could see how that could be the case. But remember this, remember this, because you have to compare this amongst other views. Every view takes silence, women's silence, to be some kind of special limited silence in a particular context, other than the total silence view, which has a bunch of problems. Um, but this view has an advantage and that it finds that context in the passage judging prophecy. It does the same thing 
when it finds questions in the context of judging prophecy. There's no inconsistency there. It's not in any unlikely cultural circumstances like education issues, cultic practices, lacking social skills, all which seem very unlikely to be only female and all female issues. An advantage of this view is its consistency with other teachings also on women in ministry. Here's my pros, right? I want to push my view that I think is correct. Um, and I would like to persuade others of what I think is correct and true. So women can prophesy, 1 Corinthians 11, but they have to do so while observing proper gender roles related to authority. Women can serve in ministry and engage in the gifts, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, but they're not to be in the role of elder. So yes, participate, but with some limitations. Here in 1 Corinthians 14, women can uh, speak in tongues and prophesy, but when it comes time to judge the prophecy, they're to hold off. It's not that they're unable to discern things. It's about maintaining gender roles. I've had jobs where, I, for example, I was capable of making a decision that my boss was supposed to make. Like I could have made it, maybe I thought I could make it better, but it would have been overstepping. It would have been wrong for me to just make the decision and not give him that role and not observe his role. Even if he's wrong, he's the one who's accountable for it. I'm accountable for my place. And so this is something I think we, I think we understand. I think mature people understand. So this view, in my opinion, has none of the weaknesses of most of the views. Let me walk you through them again. Why is it only women? Well, it's because this passage is about gender roles related to church leadership and marriage. You can't answer that question well on the education view or the clatter view or the cult view type view or uh, you know any of the first three views. That, that doesn't make any sense. Why is it all women? All women, all the women in Corinth and all the women in other places that only makes sense on one of the complementarian views, particularly the judging prophecy one, I think fits it better. And why submission? This is where I think it rescues anybody who would say, oh, this asking questions thing, it really doesn't work with the judging of prophecy. Remember, Paul thinks asking questions is related to submission. Ah, so it could be that he is seeing these questions in the context of judging prophecy as a way of subverting the leadership from making those decisions and from guiding that moment. The questions is in relation to submission. That's the thing I've observed in the passage. And the only, the only um, uh, view that's, the, or I should say this, put it this way, the view that best explains that fact seems to be the judging prophecy view. And finally, why is this passage in the middle of a section on prophecy? <laughs> when Paul clearly allows women prophets, why is it in the middle of a section on prophecy? Because it's about judging prophecy. Not sharing prophecy, but judging prophecy. This view seems superior. The judging prophecy view, uh, I, I, held, I have held this view for a while now, but after really studying this passage in a lot of detail, um, I, it, it seems much stronger, more reinforced. I feel like it's, I feel more certain of it personally. Uh, let me speak real quickly about some random extra stuff, and then we're going to get into the conclusion for today's video, just my little quiet, quick summary. So random stuff. Uh, is Paul speaking of women in general or wives in this passage? Uh, this is a whole other side debate. Um, I don't think it's worth all the time it could take to get into it, so I'll just briefly say this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14.35, it could indicate that it's wives because it says they would ask their own husbands at home. That's possible. Um, or does Paul assume that women are generally married? This is, this is where I would lean. He just assumes that women are generally married. So when he gives general broad instructions to women, he treats them like they're married. A single woman would read this and know, oh, I will have to ask someone else. Or a woman who's married and her husband's not a Christian, she would know, I have to ask someone else. Paul's not expecting them to be unwise as they hear these instructions, but to be able to apply them to their scenario. 
it seems we're hard pressed to limit this to marriage because it seems like it's about men and women in the church in general. Uh, an unmarried woman would understand the application, I think. Um, some people, here's another issue. Some people suggest that this is all in the context of men and women having separate sitting areas during early church gatherings. So <clears throat> this has been promoted and I, and it doesn't seem well promoted in the scholarship, at least the ones I've read. Okay. Um, but I've seen it online just from random individuals saying, Hey, the women were in one side of the church. The men were in the other side of the church and women were, again, this is part of the less educated view. They were less educated. So they were shouting across the church. Hey, honey. What does he mean by hypostatic union you know, or something like that? And then the husband would be like, you know, oh, well, Barbara, he means this. You know, and he would shout out his answer across. I don't know why Barbara, but he would shout his answer across the room. Um, and this is, this is problematic for a number of reasons. All the problems with the education view are true here. These women had the same education as the men in regards to Christian theology. So this doesn't make sense that women all are being, it just doesn't make sense. Um, also, there's simply no evidence that women were kept in separate separate sides of the rooms uh, from men during church gatherings in the first century. There's just no evidence for it. Um, like, please don't absorb this view until you see the actual evidence for it. And don't just be like, well, someone told me it was like that. I, I, there's no evidence for it. So in the Jewish temple, there was a court of women. This is the closest you can get in the Jewish temple. In Jerusalem, there was a court of women. Men could go there too, but beyond that, the women couldn't go. Um, that's not part of the temple the way that God designed it in the Old Testament, but that was how it was at that time in the New Testament times. Um, Craig Keener, though, responds to this. Let me just quote to you from his response. I think it's helpful. He says, but the evidence for this practice is problematic at best. Although the temple in Paul's day did not allow women into the court of Israel, there's no clear architectural suggestion or segregation in the average local synagogue. The custom of gender segregation in the synagogue seems to have first arisen in the Middle Ages, and earlier rabbinic literature presupposes that men and women met together there. You can get into his footnotes uh, in his uh, book. Um, is it Paul Women Wives? No, is that Craig Keener's book? Anyway, it's, it's all I have notes in my in my notes. You can look at Craig Keener's just like Keener, Craig Keener. You can find it. And anyway, at any rate, uh, what you've got here is. Um, is something where there's simply no evidence, but it's a handy solution. It's something, oh, easy problem solved. There's no evidence for it. The church was very likely not splitting the genders. There's no evidence to support that they were. Um, Oh, last thing I'll mention before the conclusion is some people think maybe this passage is actually about women being teachers, women being teachers. When it says women be silent, it just refers to them teaching. This can't explain the prophecy context this can't explain why asking questions to learn things is an issue, right? That doesn't make sense. That doesn't fit that context, although the judging prophecy thing can explain that. And nothing anywhere near the context of this passage, 1 Corinthians 14, says anything about teaching. So we're we're, import, we're forcing that onto the passage, I believe. So I haven't even covered that view. I don't think it's well supported. And I don't think it's there's very many people who hold it. All right, conclusions. I'll go to six just for fun. Conclusions. What do we conclude from 1 Corinthians 14, specifically as it relates to the topic of women in ministry, which is the focus of this long series, which there are only two videos left. I'll tell you what they are in just a second. Number one, women can prophesy and speak in public church gatherings. They can. This was somewhat counter-cultural at the time that they could openly speak in those gatherings uh, prophetically or even in tongues. But it comes with a serious qualification Role differences are to be observed. This is the part nobody likes. <laughs> in particular, 
as it relates to not just speaking, but speaking with authority or speaking to control the judging of prophecy. They can prophesy, right, share, but not judge the prophecy. This is totally consistent with 1 Corinthians 11, which encourages female prophecy, but with a sign showing continued role differences between men and women related to submission. So they can prophesy, but when it comes to judging prophecy, there's safeguards to preserve the role differences related to submission. Um, also, a conclusion we can get from this is that women are not restricted in any learning. Um, while it wasn't the focus of what Paul is talking about, he does mention it. He says, if they want to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. This is interesting because there were some Jewish debates around Paul's time about how much of the Torah a woman should learn and how much should her husband teach her. And here, it's very broad, right? Um, if she wants to learn anything, let, let, let her ask her husband at home. Anything. This is interesting because it's basically, and this is something I've repeated elsewhere, there should be no limit to the theological research and study and education that a woman can receive for her own learning. Uh, it'd be another question about training to become an elder or pastor, that kind of thing, because obviously that's a different scenario. It's not just learning things. This is about uh, trying to pursue a path, a career path, a ministry path that God seems to have put a limit on. So um, yeah, no restriction in learning. So some people take ask your husbands at home in chapter 14, verse 35 as an insult, um, but would actually preserve the right for the woman to still pursue her questions and concerns outside a role that pushes into the elder type function. So she can't be told, well, that information is not for you. That knowledge is not for you. She can pursue that knowledge, that information, just not in a way that infringes onto that elder-like role. That's the conclusion. Um, also, here's a final word on the responsibility of Christians. For a lot of you listening, I know you don't like this. Um, maybe you disagree with me on, on, on exegetical grounds. Maybe there's something I've missed. There's a bunch of stuff I've got wrong. And so you go, no, no, you've just interpreted it wrong. But you should agree with me on this. If this interpretation is correct, you are not allowed to despise it as a Christian. You are not allowed to despise it as a Christian. Read Psalm 119. I delight in your word. I love your word. Your word is like, it's like honey on my lips. Well, this is God's word. And where it tells us these things, we should be celebrating these things. You can't say Jesus is Lord and then despise the things that he commands his church. When the church stands up and is proud in this, in this good way to boast in the Lord and be proud of what he has said and declared and hold fast to his truths and celebrate them in the face of a world that looks and calls you names and says things like shame on you, that is when we're honoring Christ, right? Because I'm not ashamed of Christ or his truth. If your heart doesn't like this, you need to know that your heart is wrong. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Right? Trust him with all your heart, including on the issues of gender roles, to trust God with all your heart. What I'm suggesting here is those who are agonizing over the fact that the Bible seems to very clearly teach gender role differences, you shouldn't be agonizing. You might be, and I understand. Right? You've been raised with modern feminism and it has devalued gender roles and it has even demonized them. And you come with that background to the revelation of God. But I'm saying this agony is a byproduct of your cultural background and not a byproduct of any actual problems with scripture or with what God has declared. So we should be celebrating these things. All right, the next video in this series is gonna be on 1 Timothy 2. Um, probably the hottest topic on this of of this entire debate, 
First Timothy 2, verses 11 through 15, where he says, you know, I don't allow a woman to teach or have authority over man. What is that about? We're getting into this in great detail. Then I'll do one final video, an overview and application where I'm just going to quickly overview everything. I mean, very, very quickly, no details here, just broad strokes, overview the, the, the whole thing, summary and application, practical, pragmatic questions about not just eldership, but things like um, uh, a woman who runs a podcast talking about Christian issues or theology or a woman attending a seminary, uh, teaching um, uh, a Sunday school classes or youth ministry, like all those hard questions. I'm not saying I have all the answers. I'm saying we're going to we're going to put them all out there, all the questions out there and seek as much clarity as at least we can provide based on the studies that have already gone on in the Women in Ministry series. Thank you for your patience. Um, I'm still like dealing with uh, COVID brain fog, I guess. Well, I know it is, and it's pretty lousy. So I'm hoping my teaching is not suffering too much. I thought it was still worth trying to record this, but it's definitely slowing me down a lot. I can't study for as many hours. And when I do a lot of work, it's just like it wipes me out for way too long. So that being said, thank you for your patience. I'll get all this out to you as soon as I possibly can, God willing. And I'd like to close this in prayer. Um, Father, we rejoice in your word. We delight by the force of our wills. We delight in what you have said. And if our hearts don't rejoice in it, Lord, we trust that one day they will. Our hearts are just silly like that. We trust in the scriptures. We trust in the revelation of Christ. We trust in all that you've said. And when you say things about genders and the difference between men and women and our roles, and these are things that our culture not only doesn't know about, but actively hates, we recognize that it's our job to stand peacefully and confidently on the things that you've delivered to us. In Jesus' name.